Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio, Season 3, Episode 5. I don't know how to introduce this man, Kieran O'Regan. He's a nutcase. If you thought I was bad and you met me in person, you know how crazy I am. I think Kieran might be even crazier. Now, the weird thing about me and Kieran is we've never even met face to face. This was our first time to think to talk ever on a podcast. Kieran is a lunatic. He's a great guy. Call him the King of Cork for obvious reasons here when you listen to the first few minutes of this podcast. This is a long episode, so you might not want to listen to this in one big chunk. You might want to break it up. We do ramble a lot. We talk about a lot of different things. Kieran is like a philosopher, a fighter, a psychologist, a physiologist, a strength and conditioning guy, a historian. I, he's bits of everything. He's, he's got more interest than I have. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, you know, he's he's really interesting character. So I'm not going to talk too much about this because I, I don't even know how to describe this episode. We do talk about sleep as well, but it's broader than that. Um, he's, he's a very interesting character. I'd urge you also as well to follow uh, follow Kieran over on Instagram and also have a read of some of his writings on the Quarrelsome Life, his website. And he also writes for Danny Lennon and the guys there at Sigma Nutrition. He's part of that team. He's got some really interesting... He's got an interesting style of writing and he's got some interesting takes on current affairs topics and, and sort of life. This man is a bit of a stoic, a bit of a Buddhist, a bit of a Taoist, a bit of a lunatic. What a great guy. So, long episode. Hope you enjoy it. Does ramble a bit. If not, you know, press pause and move on to another episode. <laughs> so, before we get to this episode, as always, we've got this little small advertisement here from Nordic Fitness for the sleep recovery course. Don't forget the code SLEEPEND20 for 20% off at the cart on the exit there. So you can get 20% off there when you buy the course uh, with Nordic. As always, you can follow us at sleepforperformance.com.au on the website. You can sign up there for the monthly newsletter to get a wrap-up of the month, what's going on. We won't spam you every week, we promise. I won't do that again. It gets very annoying. I did that prior. It's not nice. So once a month, you'll get a newsletter from us as well there if you wish to sign up for that and we do not set your information to anybody else as some people have been asking me we don't make any money off of that and also on facebook sleep for performance now i keep forgetting to do this so i'm going to do it today if you enjoy the podcast can you please leave a review on itunes i didn't really know much about this but people said helps it bumps it up more people get to see the podcast it gets more visible and that's what we're trying to do sleep for performance is a non-for-profit so the website the podcast it's all free we give this out all free it, it you know whatever we, we're not even cost neutral it's we're still sort of in the red with this there is no aspirations here to make money from state for performance so we would welcome any sort of uh, review on itunes or any feedback you have please send it to me at ian dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au we want to really push this podcast to everybody and at least give them the opportunity to listen if they wish if not that's cool you can't listen to every single podcast so but really we want to let people know that it's out there yeah please if you could give us a, a review or share it out the goal is not to make money off sleep for performance it's to provide good information and education for everybody okay i'll stop blabbering on into the episode Exercise and diet are well established in society as two pillars for optimizing our health. However, both are supported by a foundation that is often forgotten, yet even more integral to our health, namely sleep. The Sleep Recovery Specialist course is an innovative online education experience that provides an in-depth knowledge base, important sleep assessment tools, and a wide range of effective strategies for supporting clients to improve their sleep habits and behaviors. 
improve your sense of happiness and well-being, daily energy and alertness, recovery from physical training, reduce risk of obesity and diabetes, and reduce your appetite and sweet cravings. Achieve all of this and more. For further information and to enroll online, please visit www.nordicfitnesseducationblog.com. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio, Season 3. Today I am joined by the king, the king of Cork, Kieran O'Regan. <laughs> the man who is a seven, the man who's always hanging off a monkey bar, the man who's always upside down, the man who's always in disarray, the man who will bring the, the Republic of Cork to freedom, the one and only, the quarrelsome life man, Kieran O'Regan. <laughs> How's that for an introduction, Kieran? Uh, unexpected, put it that way. Unexpected. Unexpected. I'm only, I'm only, a, I'm only a blow into Cork. Learman could be my original uh, home, so it's an interesting title. Interesting title. Well, you're the new king of Cork. Like that's that's what I would say. Like because um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the only country, the Republic of Cork. You know, like I often tell people about Cork. You know, people don't get get Cork. Cork is like the Texas of Ireland. They wanted to become their own republic back in the 20s. They even made their own postage stamp. They wanted to become a little a little nation of their own. Did you? Yeah, that's exactly how I describe it as well. The Texas, the the the, the, the don't the trying to be its own little place. But I'm not. To be honest, I'm not that averse to uh, people who like Cork a lot. Like I, uh, it's strange not when you don't live here and you, you meet people from Cork. And everyone from here just loves the place. Then when you actually live here, then especially in the city, they're like, "Oh yeah, I can see why people like it." You know, it's just the right size, easy to get around. There's enough variety and enough novelty to keep things nice and spicy. And but then not it's not so big and not so sprawled out that it's difficult to get around. We have to spend a lot of time in the car. A lot of live music and good restaurants and lots and lots and lots of sport. Yeah. So um, yeah. I can see why people like the place. It's like it's like Galway on steroids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nice. I must admit, I do, I do like Cork myself. Like, uh, it is, it is a good town. Um, it's a pretty interesting place. I've had a, a few good nights out there many years ago, probably when you were in your nappies. But anyway, back in '97, '98. But yeah, yeah, interesting place. So, Karen, you come from Limerick. Now, Limerick is a great city as well, commonly known as Stab City in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was growing up, Limerick was called Stab City in the eighties and the early nineties. <laughs> so you see, you, you can't win on this podcast. Have you? Um, can you give us a report on um, the current status of the nickname of Stab City and Limerick at the moment? Because I I haven't been in Limerick now since about nineteen ninety five. To be honest, I um, I think the name from is actually historically accurate like uh, and I, I won't even try and deny it like, like I was at a blind boy from the Robber Bandits the Irish comedy duo I was at a live podcast recording of blind boy with a Limerick historian in Dolan's warehouse earlier this year and uh, turns out that apparently people used to stab each other in Limerick all the time and not just gangsters but just people who just get annoyed with each other and stab each other. And apparently it was like a weekly thing during the, during not just the 80s and 90s, but even 
for decades and decades before that. Like it was just it was just this thing people did when they got annoyed with each other. It's poke holes with each other. <laughs> so I don't even think that the name is unjustified, un, which which strangely enough, but I think at the moment it's 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 actually really quiet. It's nice like there's there's a lot of um news. The, the city is picking up again. The place basically shut down after a couple of multinationals left there just after the the banking crash, you know, the 2007, 8, 9, 10, a bunch of multinational companies like Dell often took their manufacturing to cheaper work climates. And a load of other companies followed then because they'd make supporting parts. And then sure, they had the knock-on effect of all the other industries then that those workers would have been pumping money into like bars and restaurants and all that kind of crack. So the city was very dull and there was very little going on there for a few years. Like when I was in college in UL until about 2012 and a few years after, but since about 2015, it's been picking up really well. And a lot of the, the, the city centers improving a lot and everything. And it's nice, but, but funny enough, the stab city thing for the first time ever in Limerick on uh, new year's Eve, just gone like 2017, 18, that new year's Eve. I actually, for the first time ever had a knife pulled on me. So on my way to a bar with a group of lads by a, a really drunk 15 or 16-year-old, he whipped out two knives, a Stanley blade in one hand. And uh, this is a, it never happened to me before. I, never, I don't think it happened to any of my mates either. I mean, we lived their whole lives, apart from the few years that I lived away. But he, he was he, he's almost like a poet. He had a Stanley blade in one hand and then a kind of a, a longer one in the other hand, I don't know, two or three inches long. And he literally used the phrase, this one for slashing, this one for stabbing. Like, oh, charming. What? So he's like he's like a, yeah. like a limbic version of Miyamoto Musashi with the long the long broadsword and the short one. Go ahead. Oh yeah, that's actually funny enough, right? So to get to distract this for that, because I had to make a decision. Like it just, I was with a group of my mates. It was four or five of my mates. All most of them I would have played rugby with before, so we weren't we weren't exactly a group of lads that looked like easy targets to put it that way. Because there was probably between the, there was probably an average of about ninety to one hundred and ten kilo, one hundred and five kilos between us, you know. And he ended up. Uh, I had to make the split. It's a strange decision that you have to make when you're thinking to yourself. When you have this fella to your left hand side with a Stanley blade in one hand and then a kind of a pokey looking knife in the other hand, a long two or three inch one that could definitely poke holes in you. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, all right, do I need to go now and just initiate an attack? So, so, and then if I do, how do I restrain the arms? What angle do I take so I get stabbed as little as possible while restraining this fella? It's a strange, it's a strange thought process to have to go through is to think through how to get stabbed as little as possible. And uh, I ended up, and then, and then I kind of made the split second decision of, uh, so I've done, done a load of um, nightclub security work when I was in college and for, and, and, and some other times since then as well, whenever, especially after I come back after living abroad. And, um, and, I, remember, and, and I, I had taught, come, I'd basically come across this, this concept of breaking people's um, kind of habit loops or behavioral loops by chucking a spanner in the works, you know? So if someone's being really, really aggressive or they have a bottle in their hand or whatever is to bring up something in conversation absolutely unrelated 
just to kind of buy yourself a split second or to get them thinking rather than usually when someone acts very aggressively they're going to look for one of two responses either for you to back down or for you to get aggressive as well whereas chuck a spanner in the works like asking in someone what i don't know ask them about santa claus or something totally unrelated it just kind of buys you a second maybe and uh, I actually mentioned it to this for that. I, I, I was like, it's worth, it's worth a shot. So I actually asked him, had he heard of Moyamoto Musashi? And this, this young fellow was like, what? And I said, Musashi, have you ever heard of him? He was a 17th century swordsman who was so good at killing people with swords. He stopped using real swords and started using wooden ones to give other fellas a chance. Yeah. And that, that kind of stunned your man for a second. And then he got distracted and he just kind of ran across the road to talk to some other fella. And then I got talking to his mates, his other young fellas, and kind of just became buddies with them. So when your man came back, he was a bit more, um, he kind of, we were already mates with his mates. So he kind of, the situation mellowed out. But funny enough, it's actually actually that I brought up in the conversation. Well, <laughs> this knife-wielding knife drunk young fella. I, I think this is a good time to pause here, Karen, and tell our listeners because um, I have your resume here in front. And for those people who don't know Kieran, he said they're, you know, somewhere between 90 to 100 kilos. What are you, 6'1", six, 6'2"? Six, Around there, man. I'm not sure, actually. Right. Yeah. So he's a big, you're a big fucker, right? Now, Kieran starts off on his resume. 2008 Athletics, All-Ireland Senior Schools finalist in discus throw. You've got to be pretty big to throw that lump of metal. 2008, rugby player. 2012, boxing. Munster Novice Champion Super Heavyweight. Boxing, National Intermediate Finalist, Super Heavyweight, 2013. Boxing again, 2013, Munster Intermediate Champion, Super Heavyweight. 2017, K1 Kickboxing, Fire with the Cage Legacy Kickboxing Promotion. That's what I would have said to him. And <laughs> <laughs> see what he does. Because at 15, <laughs> 15 like, like really, and I, and I know you've done grappling before, you know, I know you've trained with some high level boxers as well. Like, what is wrong with these people? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And you're, what, what, how, how old are you, Karen? Like what, 27, 28, 29? Uh, 29, actually. 29, and this lad's 15. How heavy was he? Oh, man, if he was if he was 50 kilos soaking weight, I don't know, 60 kilos maybe, I don't even remember, he was tiny. Right, lads. You know, you know what the problem there is? That's drugs. That's, that's drugs for you because you want to be on <laughs> <laughs> a chance there. Also, please go and listen to my recent Sleep for Performance audio abstract on the use of cannabinoids in sleep because that guy is on something else. That is ridiculous. Like, really? Like, you yeah. should have asked that guy who was any good at statistics and then said to him, you know, height versus where versus my record versus... <laughs> you know, was he familiar with P, P less than 0.05? Because obviously he wasn't. The poor guy... <laughs> yeah, the probability... You should have just brought him straight like to some sort of like clinic to get assessed. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it's the kind of thing that was taught through very much. You know, I don't I don't think there was much calculations going on in, in, in his head and there was much thought process put in. Obviously. Um, not. Yeah, I don't know. And but maybe he just thought maybe because like apparently according to his mates, he had actually stabbed someone before and he was due to go to court for stabbing someone before in school or something or after school or something. So maybe it wasn't a new thing to him. So it was a, an odd situation anyway. Unfortunately, the, the the name of the city kind of lived up to its 
lived up to it or the city kind of lived up to its name with that event. But it was, it was very odd. Like that's, that's not a normal occurrence. Like put it that way. Right. Well, Just so happened to make for a, an interesting story. An interesting story. That's a, that's a good sort of preface to your introduction on this podcast. Cause normally we introduce the guests first, but we went, we went straight into it. So Kieran, do you, do you want to give um, our listeners a brief background on you and your sort of role and um, some of the things you're interested in apart from um, disarming 15 year old 50 kilo stabbers if that's what you can call them <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> I suppose my my background would be in that I would have just grown up playing a lot of rugby schools rugby in Limerick in a school where rugby was basically it was a, a, a Catholic school but rugby was the actual religion it was you know it was like a, a rugby school with a catholicism problem as opposed to a catholic school with a rugby problem <laughs> and uh <laughs> that's probably the way of putting it and uh grew up playing rugby in school and then just had ended up having some fantastic mentors as rugby coaches who encouraged us to to lift weights and to eat high protein diets and uh, get into big picture lifestyle and sleep a lot actually as well thinking about it now and um, especially one of the coaches who I'm still, still kind of a, a lad I keep in contact with and just started getting us thinking about big picture lifestyle stuff to help our rugby performance and that was from the age of like 15 that I would have, we would have been coming across these kind of concepts and then I just kept going down the training rabbit hole and really enjoyed the strength training side of things and the nutrition side of things and sure, this is like 2005, six when I would have been getting into this stuff and the only information that I knew to find was what you'd get in the newspaper newsstand, like men's health magazines and flex reading about all these, um, these training programs by lads who weren't exactly on the same kind of, uh, hormonal profiles that I was going to be, uh, training with. And still it was better than nothing, I suppose. At least you had the names of exercises and, uh, then off the back of that, then ended up, finishing school, going down the sports science route because I was so into the training. And after while I was in college, I ended up um, having a really well-rounded edu- sports science education. Then ended up interning with Munster Rugby while I was there with mostly the academy. Um, then after that, ended up getting on a private coaching route, working with a bunch of teams across getting football, rugby, hurling, and but for the few years there, 2016, 17, 2015, 16, kind of 17, my absolute priority ended up having a stint in in uh, Connacht Rugby for a few months, just as an interim role at the end of 2015 season. But I'd already at that stage booked flights and work and everything sorted and visas to go to America to go and live to train uh, in Boston to go boxing. So my priority was while I was young and relatively healthy in terms of injuries and everything to prioritize my own fighting over coaching. So I ended up putting the coaching on the back burner for 2015, 16 and the first bit of 17 while I was prioritizing fighting myself. And uh, but then I stopped, I would have retired and finished up fighting there competitively last year and um, in the last year and just been going, putting all my energy into predominantly into the coaching side of things and at the moment I'm working with uh, Sigma Nutrition doing helping fighters make weight predominantly and 
and working with uh, a few amateur, a couple of amateur rugby teams and a hurling team here in Cork and doing in-person SNC and kind of sports science support stuff, like helping them manage their overall training and help working with the sport coaches and to get the most out of their skills, the skill side of things. So that's basically my work, I suppose. I'm, um, I'm kind of like a generalist sports science, sports scientist, I suppose you could put it. I kind of wear a few hats. Yeah, I think um, also as well, um, you do have a keen interest in the nutrition side as well. Um, and also yeah. you are a little bit of a philosopher, Kieran, as well, and a bit of a innovator in terms of training as well. Like, so if people follow Kieran on, on Instagram, we'll put the links in the show notes, but on Instagram, and I want to talk actually today about your electronic or digital detox, because um, I missed you on Instagram. <laughs> But <laughs> I used to put a lot of videos up on different novel training methods, a lot of stuff on philosophy, some of your articles that you've written on Sigma Nutrition and elsewhere on your website, blog, quarrels, and, you know, quite interesting. You do incorporate philosophy and sort of very much stoic philosophy, aspects of Buddhism, Taoism into your approach to your exercise science as well. So you do have mm. some art, which we'll, we'll further explore in this episode. But before we go down Brilliant. rabbit holes, Karen, um, it's interesting to, for you to talk about your experience growing up playing rugby because I had a very similar experience in the Connacht rugby scene as a kid. And I think this is something that I've been saying to people um, with kids who may not be very good at a sport, for example. Um, you don't have to be the best, but sport can give you so much more about, you're talking about big picture, your approach to your life. And I think for me, like playing rugby as a kid, in my teenage years, you know, we had good coaches too that t- told us about the importance of sleep and nutrition and hydration and, you know, physical preparation and, you know, how to behave like men and to be respectful and to get things done and to back up what you were going to, uh, what you said you were going to do by actions and, you know, just being accountable and, and, and it's, it's a very good process for becoming, you know, a man. And it was for me. And I think sometimes mm. we lack that as a, as a rite of passage as teenagers and um it's also interesting to hear you talk about connacht because um you know i don't want to bring up old memories karen but in 1994 you know we were the only team to win the double the cup and the league in the connacht provincial under 16s for 25 years we were the only athlone team to do that in 25 years so i just want to throw in that bit of trivia there because i know a lot of people would be looking for that photograph online of lifting, yeah, nice. of lifting the cup in the sports ground at age 15.9 years old. So I'm um, very, very important, very important aspects of my life there. <laughs> nice. Well, it reminded me though, there's a, you know, that there's a brilliant book, um, Conscious Coaching by Brett Bartholomew. And um, there's a lot, there's a lot of one particular line in that that stood out to me and it's massive. And I couldn't agree with it more is that the, the line went, uh, we don't win sport with kids. We win kids with sport. Yeah. Which is kind of like acknowledging, I suppose, the, the, the developmental role that doing difficult stuff, especially, and it doesn't, it can, it can be team oriented stuff that has certain benefits, individual oriented sports has certain benefits, but just doing difficult stuff where you're failing and then you're getting back up and trying again and you're succeeding and learning how to I suppose, deal with success or dealing with, be learning some humility you know you're going all these ups and downs and failures and injuries and setbacks and you know a lot of there's a lot of um 
I suppose, different modules and different aspects of a personality that sport can help to expose and prepare you for that can potentially benefit regular life even when you're finished sport or outside of sport. So I couldn't agree more, man. It was massive. A big thing is a big thing with the weight training in particular for me as a as a younger lad was this was this realization, and it was especially with weight training because it's so immediately quantifiable. Obviously, because it's numbers, so kilos and reps. So it it developed it helped to develop and foster this mentality of if you just keep showing up and keep learning about stuff and keep implementing stuff that you learn, you can just keep getting better. And this, that, and then taking that idea and carrying it across to other aspects of life, like academia and anything really. If you just keep showing up and you keep put, you keep learning and you keep improving your knowledge and you keep trying to implement and experiment, you can just get better at whatever you want. And that because you can see the way it's going up or the reps going up, you know. So it developed, it had to cultivate that mentality in a very obvious way, you know. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you, and it reminds me of Henry Rollins, um, who I admire a lot for his work ethic. He talks about that as well. I think he wrote an article in Rolling Stone called Iron Doesn't Lie. And you're right. It's the immediate feedback. And there's not too many things in our life where we can get that immediate feedback. You know, jujitsu, mat boxing, those type of things can give you as well. But definitely, you know, lifting those weights. There's, there's, no, there's no wiggle room there. You're either making the number or not. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing with, um, with other sports, I suppose, even outside of strength training, again, this is just a bias, but I think with other sports, it's your progress isn't that immediately obvious, you know, because for instance, even in, in, in boxing or jujitsu, you could very well be improving and very well getting better, but you happen to have a string of time in which you get beaten up for a few weeks or a few months, just because you happen to be training with or against guys that are at a higher level that just by pure chance end up being your main rolling, your sparring partners or competitors for a period of time. And just, the, the gap in abilities of no fault of your own is you're as good as you could be at that time period and you've continued to improve, but you just happen to have come across. Whereas very rarely, unless you're at an extremely high level in as a strength athlete, or unless you don't really know what you're doing and you don't know, you understand the kind of basic tenets of a training process, are you going to spend months without making any progress? You know? Whereas you could be very well making a lot of progress in other sports and, and not realizing that you're actually getting better by pure chance because of who you happen to be training or competing against. Yeah, that's, that's, that, you know what, that just struck such a chord with me because there's two examples there that back up that. About a month ago, or about maybe three weeks ago, I got my brown belt in jiu-jitsu and I wasn't expecting it. Congrats. I, nice. I was, I, was very, I was very pleased to get it and, and it's sort of frightening at the, at the same time. But... And on the same night, it was really nice because my wife got her blue belt. She'd been training for two and a half years and she's not very, you know, she's in her forties. She only weighs like 53 kilos. She's not, you know, a big muscle up person, but she's in there she's grinding against it every week, you know? Um, and I just love yeah. the determination against it. And she's always up against it. But we got our belts and, you know, it was nice. And but then about last weekend, I was in rolling and a big blue belt, strong, really, you know, a really strong guy, lifts a lot of weights, sex rugby player taps me right and so it's like well am I, am I completely shit am I not a brown belt no you, you, it, there's a part of you that says you know that's crap I sh- that shouldn't have happened but then I jump I jump into another role with somebody else and I'm grappling against another brown belt my same height my same weight my same edge and then I win so what's your true measure of performance and what's your true measure of mm. 
you know, so it's really hard. And similarly, I yeah. started swimming about seven or eight months ago. And I'm in this group where I was progressively getting better up the lanes. But then I jumped into another group where they're training for a 20 kilometer ocean water swim. And I'm right down the bottom of them again because they're all mm. swimmers. So you're constantly, whatever you're being surrounded with and whatever causing that stimulus is constantly, you know, the goals are, the goalposts are constantly changing. Your benchmarks are changing, which I think is a good thing because I love being at the tail end and I love being the white belt, so to speak, constantly mm. driving and trying to get ahead. Because unless I'm in that position, I, f- I don't have that burning desire. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm close to mastery and I find it easy, I get bored. So I constantly have mm. pressure for that growth. But I think even when you pick up new things like that, and anytime you enter a new field and you realize how far down a picking order and you realize how far away you are from the knowledge horizon for that particular field, I think that that kind of stimulates some, I, I from my own personal experience that, that kind of helps that mentality, that white belt mentality of when you realize how far you are away from the knowledge horizon in a particular field, that that potentially feeds into your primary fields that you're much, much closer to the knowledge horizon, but it almost reawakens a kind of a curiosity or reawakens a kind of a, a, a hunger for learning potentially across multiple domains of your life just because you've you've realized that in one aspect or one domain, I, I kinda, I've kind of found it, it, it feeds across to other aspects. You know, oh, I like agree. I recently, uh, yeah, I, re- I recently would have taken up, I decided about six, seven weeks ago to, to train for um, powerlifting and to do, um, to some of the boys, like the two boys, or the three boys I work with in, in Sigma, like they all, com- all have competed or currently compete in powerlifting, Danny Arthur and Garen. Um, and so I, I ended up hiring Gar as a, a coach for myself. And I was like, just to, 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 to cause he's an expert. That's what he does. He's a powerlifter and he coaches powerlifters. And, uh, oh, it's, I'm really enjoying the, the training process. Just the, the, the whole, I mean, the only goal is to be shifting weight. It's obviously to be, there's obviously the technical aspects, but the, the end objective is to lift as much weight as possible. So it's very interesting being part of that process. And, and, um, starting from scratch and from a, a totally new sport. You know, it's really, it's really, really enjoyable. I'm only six or seven weeks in now, but it's brilliant. But I think it comes back to the Masashi thing. Once you see the way you, you can see it broadly. So once you master one, yeah. or you get good at something, you know the process. And so you can apply it. But the detriment to that is that the more you actually master something, the more you know, like the Dunning-Kruger curve, is the more you realize, the less you know. And then you become kind of in this perpetual cycle of trying to gain more knowledge but as you gain more knowledge you realize that you actually there's more to learn and it gets really yeah. frustrating and you're just constantly like you're kind of accelerating towards this acquisition of skill knowledge improvement and um as you get older then it gets more finite the time and you, you get a bit more stressed so you kind of like i find as i get older i'm getting busier <laughs> you know because i'm like oh god yeah. these things done so you know it's yeah. kind of interesting so I've been thinking a lot about that recently and it, it came down to, I was trying to think how to uh, explain, I've been thinking and writing a lot about science and the philosophy of science over the last few months. And one of the, the first articles from a series and then was published on Sigma a few weeks ago. And one of the concepts that I've been thinking about is, is I've been trying to figure out kind of blockages to scientific thinking in general. And 
I think this concept, one of the, and one of the the kind of segments, or one of the kind of branches in this idea of communicating what science is to people, I think is I don't. I think it's across a lot of different fields. I think people have very definite or certain views on particular on, their, on particular fields, especially you see it a lot in, in politics. Obviously, is an easy example where people have extremely hardline, seemingly certain views that have come across as very definite, like they're a hundred percent right, and there's no room for there's no room for changing their views. And I and I think the more likely someone is like that, the further they are away from. I used the phrase a minute ago as well, but the knowledge horizon in that particular field, like they're the reason they're so certain is because they have no idea what they don't know. Do you know, like they're they're they can't think about that field in a very high resolution because they don't have a lot of known parts or a lot of awareness of what actually makes up that field and what are the contributing factors mm. to things happening in a particular field. You know, like you see it a lot, like an example would be around around Cork. There's a as a habit, a lot of there's a there's a lot of these kind of student Marxists or student but well, that's the only way to put them is student Marxists who think it's a good idea to be going around spray painting communist slogans on walls. And I'm just I'm just thinking to myself, like, how how I just I just can't even comprehend how that seems to be like a good idea and why that's any different to spray painting swastikas on walls. You know? And I think it's just because they don't understand enough about what that what that those slogans are related to, and what com, what communism led to in, as a, in, in respect to a death toll in the twentieth century, and just have, they just don't have. Whereas they have this kind of a, maybe an idyllic view of Marxism with capitalism is bad and. That means that because Marx happened to make some really really good criticisms of the capitalist system, but his his view on how to fix it maybe wasn't the best. And this kind of utopian view of society that didn't exactly work out how I'm sure himself and Engel planned and with hundreds of millions of people dying. And I think there's that lack of high-resolution thinking because they just don't have the known parts to think with. They don't have, they don't understand the kind of context or nuance in a situation. Yeah. Sorry, I just went off on a ramble there. I was oh. thinking out loud because I mean, I've been writing a lot about that, but I think the same thing can be said in fields of science and across the board of coaching and people that are very hard lined down a particular nutrition ideology, like keto or vegan or whatever. Like oh. If they're just hard lined down it and, and, and have a hammer and everything looks like a nail, I think it's just because they don't have, they can't think enough about that topic in high resolution. They can't think in in, an, in high enough of a resolution to be able to realize how little they actually know about this the field in general. No, I totally I totally agree with you. And as you as you were saying that, you were reminding me of a couple of things that sprung to mind. Was obviously you know Jordan Peterson's work talking about you know sort of communism in the last century and before. Yeah, it sprung to mind as well about um, the Gulag Archipelago. Um, yeah. Um, also, as well about my bloody phone here is ringing. I can't turn it off. Um, the other thing that sprung to mind as well was George Orwell's work, where he kind of compares yeah. communism. I don't know if you've ever re- read the book The Road to Wigan Pier, but um, 
you know, that's a really good book where he kind of compares and contrasts communism in that book, but also goes around to coal mines in, um, in England and talks about what's going on, you know? And yeah, I've actually, I've actually only read one chapter of that. That's, yeah, that's um, like, you know, so I, I read, I read the chapter, I went and found it online after hearing Peterson talk about it. And this particular, it was the chapter where he described, it was a few, there was a few unnerving kind of bits. One was obviously very uncomfortable with the listen to, which was describing how it is they got to work, which is crawling for miles, either stooped over. And then the closer they got to the workspace or the actual wall that they were working on, they, they had to stoop lower and lower, eventually crawling. So they ended up either hunched over or crawling for miles underground to get to work, to start their day. <laughs> like, that's, that's a fucking commute. <laughs> I'm in the car. You know, that is insane. No, I, 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 to- I totally agree with you, man. I, I know in the early 90s, I went into Czech Republic and Poland after communism had left. And I tell you one thing, I went back in 2010 and it was vastly different. And if you go into, you know, countries um, after communism, it's quite interesting um, to see what goes on. And then in 2010, I went to Cuba um, and I can tell you, Cuba is not the idyllic place that people make it out to be. I have never had, it's a, look, it's a beautiful country. The people are great, but I've never had so many people beg off me in my life. And I've worked in Africa, the Middle East and been around a few places and I've mm. so much begging in all my life, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, you know, as well as I do, there's a, an affinity with Cuba and Ireland and, um, you know, but, you know, <laughs> communism, a great operating system on paper, but in implementation on the ground, it's, um, it's vastly different than what people think, you know, it's not all, you know, chocolates and roses and everybody getting around in harmony. Um, yeah. Utopian. It's the exact opposite, in fact, because yeah. it's like you, you can't, it's like an equivalent to be it, it's centrally organized and there's just too many moving parts. And the, like, that's, that's why market, like I'm not a, a free market capitalist and it's not a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a false dichotomy to be like one or the other, like socialism or capitalism. Cause obviously there's, there's going to be an element where you want governments to be taking care of people that are, unable to take care of themselves and we're going to want to have a police force most likely rather than have mercenaries showing around enforcing order you know and it's handy to have fire brigades and public health is probably a good idea and you know having government funded education is probably a good idea but there's there's like there comes a point where um the intervention just doesn't make sense from from a centralized body because if pe- people either need certain amounts of pairs of shoes or they don't, and you can't forecast how many they're going to be needed, you know? Yeah, so I yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, but I think, again, it comes down to that, that high resolution thinking in a field, like again, that, that affinity with Cuba, like another thing you see in Ireland quite a lot is again, um, Che Guevara posters and Che Guevara t-shirts and flags and everything. And it was actually, I think it was actually a guy from Cork who drew that original, that Che Guevara, that famous Che Guevara portrait. Yeah. I think it was actually a guy from Cork that, that drew that. And, um, but you, you, what a lot of people, I suppose, don't realize, and from my understanding of it, that he wasn't exactly the most pleasant individual. And after, after they achieved some power that 
they had firing squads that murder people and hundreds at a time and led by Che Guevara that he wasn't exactly the the kind of like you know the the revolutionary the kind of sexy revolutionary with a cool hat you know that people people see him as like yeah the the uh, the guy who drew, who drew him is a guy called Jim Fitzpatrick is credited with drawing that um that image but um I, 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 yeah, it's interesting when you, you look into it. But I think also, Karen, come back to science. It's, it's interesting because I think this binary thinking of left and right, on or off, and um, communist, capitalist, you know, beliefs and fact, it, it's very much relatable back to what you were speaking originally there about the scientific method. Because we see mm. in sleep where people are like, this works and this doesn't work. 90 minute cycles, go to bed then, drink alcohol, do this, do that. And it's like, no. We, we we see a lot of this, and if you look at uh, if you follow Amy Bender, who's been a previous guest on the podcast, she's been kind of discussing some of this stuff on Twitter recently, talking about kind of you know fake news sleep calculators and um, you know a kind of a more uh, apt approach to calculating hours of sleep and what you need and so on. But the the, the message is, is like especially in sciences and especially in these human related sciences that that we de- deal in, in sports science and sleep science, there is so much individual variation that you have to look between the lines. And so even myself, mm. you'd be aware of this too, you probably had the same thing. You might look at groups and you say, look, this is how the group's behaving. They're sleeping this amount, you know, in general, the days before a game, they're sleeping this amount after a game and then this amount in the days after the game. Like, so there's kind of this fluctuation at the group level. But then you start pulling out the data of 25, 30, 40 players in that group or athletes. And there's a massive amount of variation and not everything is going to work the same for the group as it does for individual athletes. And this is mm. I have to tell a lot of people is that we are we are biology. We're 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 the animals, you know, that are that succumb to biology and we are not like it's not like processing. It's not systems in process and output. It's not like tweaking something on a on a fixed plant line where you're making cars or manufacturing. We are humans and we behave in vastly different ways. And not only do we behave in vastly different ways, but even within ourselves or using ourselves as a control, we behave in vastly different ways. So there's a huge amount of variation in these things. And we can't kind of always say, this is the answer. That's why most times when people ask me a question, the first words they hear out of my mouth is, it depends, tell me more. Yeah, 100%. And you see the same thing in, in training modalities. Like, there's this lack of, um, it's almost, as you, you mentioned, you made a great point there, which is this kind of treating of humans as these really predictable input output machines. Whereas if you do a particular thing, then you get a particular result. And it just, that's the way it happens because this is the way that a particular average worked out in a particular study or series of studies. But as you said, the difference between the individual and the group can be quite dramatic. And the band of variation within a group, within a study is, is quite an important thing to be able to look at as well, rather than just looking at averages. But in an example, in a training modality might be a particular program that has a particular strength training program that has, say, set percentages increases per week that you follow for the six or eight week block. Whereas an example would be like, you've no idea how fast it is you will adapt to that program as an individual and whether or not those predetermined increases that are on an Excel file will be too much of an increase for you and that the weights will increase too quickly and thereby lead to a 
and maladaptive training stimulus, or maybe you won't even be able to hit the numbers by the end of the program, or maybe you'll adapt faster than that. And then pretty quickly, the numbers aren't increasing fast enough. And then it's a sub-adaptive training stimulus where it's not, in, not hard enough to induce further stress. So you can't, that's where, so something I've been thinking a, a lot about, like just like you mentioned there, is this, is, um, I suppose, uncertainty-based training modalities and like uncertainty-based. In fact, chat, I chat to your man, uh, Israel Halperin, about it as well in a podcast for Sigma is kind of training the individual and training, even when training groups, instead of having fixed plans, instead it's having training plans that are adaptive to the individual that trying to encompass, trying to take into account how unpredictable things are, yeah. you know, and from a, and that can be from a sleep. So instead of having do this, because this amount of hours works or this amount of reps or sets or percentages or meters ran works, instead it's if this, then this, if this, then this. And how about we put in a system that has checks and balances in it to account for unpredictable variabilities. And then we can, even within that, have ways of looking back and checking how that's working or not to even change the system. So instead, you're kind of building into your approach an ability to deal with the unpredictability of the complex organism that a human, a free-living human represents. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, one thing like that I've been doing in the last couple of years, and this is probably from, you know, hanging around with people like Israel and a few others is using positive language as well and, and really paying attention mm. to what I say, particularly to athletes and mm. saying to them, you know, from a negative perspective, because a lot of times athletes will look at recovery as a negative. Do you only look at strength and conditioning as the stimulus or the game performance as the stimulus? And they don't look as the, they don't look at recovery um, and nutrition as value add sometimes to just view it as something that has to be complied to. Now I'm not saying mm. all athletes, you know, thinking that way, but a lot of them think about that. And, you know, a lot of us really don't like recovery activities. We like just, you know, working hard and we get addicted to that kind of sweat and the endorphins and so yeah. on. I'm definitely one of those people. I definitely overtrain as opposed to over, over recover. But one of the things I've noticed is that when you change the language around how you deal with athletes and talking to them, it's interesting. So an example is a couple of years ago when we were working with the Western Force and Super Rugby, they had to go from, you know, Australia to South Africa to Argentina and then back to Australia and play four games over like, you know, four weeks in each, a game in each location, which is quite heavy with the travel and also the game as well and try to recover. So instead of telling the athletes what not to do, we told them we did the opposite. But instead of saying don't drink coffee from, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon till six o'clock, we said drink as much coffee as you like between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. Do as much, get as much sunlight from this time. So we changed everything to positives. And it was very mm. see people kind of go, oh, okay, okay. Because people are so used to getting told what not to do. When you change it the other way, we, we changed all the language around. So we broke down the plan in a negative type thing based upon science, as in like, you know, no light exposure here will help them to adapt. Okay, well, what's the inverse of that? What's the positive? And it was very, mm. the uptake then. And then, um, you know, the interaction from people, because normally it was, oh, good, can't drink coffee, can't do this. And we actually said to the coaches, look, if you want the lads to have a beer, these are the days they can have a beer. 
And so we said to him, on these nights, this is when you can drink. We, you should only drink about two beers, but if you really want to drink as much as you like, that's okay, but it is going to disrupt your sleep. And then we'll have to make further, further changes down the line. Mm. That positive terminology too, to, um, to, fr- to reframe the training program or recovery and try and try and promote the stimulus to training or for the recovery in terms of like sleep, for example. Exactly. You're creating a sense of empowerment. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Like I was only talking to a, an injured player last night and, um, through email, one of the lads I, I work with on one of the rugby teams and he's coming back after a shoulder surgery and he's, um, he ended up doing some, an extra running session with one of these really eager and really eager to come back in great shape when he does get back in six or seven weeks. And he ended up doing my two sessions that I gave him last week. And then he ended up not chatting to me or any of their coaches and meeting up with another one of the injured lads and doing a massive volume of meters on Sunday as like an extra session at the end of the week that wasn't kind of planned. And he was feeling kind of flat on Tuesday and didn't really know why you asked him what he did last week. He was like, Oh yeah, by the way, I did a six K session on Sunday morning, which 6,000 meters of running at interval in inter broken up into intervals for 90 odd kilo rugby player is quite a lot of meters for the legs, especially at the end of a week. So just like you mentioned there, like my, the language even was very important. So I kind of purposefully pulled back his training volumes and intensities for the two running sessions this week, Tuesday and Thursday, but framed it in a positive way in that we're going to make these a little bit lower volumes and a little bit lower intensities than we did the last two weeks. Because with that extra session you did great work ethic, but we need to keep to do it. You know, even though it was a, it was a bit of volume, but good work ethic to do it, I'm sure it was very difficult but we got to let the fitness from that come through so that we're going to pull back on the volume so that we can let the fitness and let all those meters come through as a positive adaptation. Whereas if we were to do too much, your body might not have as much of a chance to be able to recover, but we want that fitness to come through. So for you to get the most out of all that hard work that we put in, we got to hold the reins back a little bit this week, see how the body responds, get a bit of a bounce back in the step. And then next week we can start kicking the door down again. You know, we're trying to frame it in that in that positive light. Yeah, yeah. And no, cycling through different phases as well, not just over like you know a big kind of periodization, you know, over six months, but even looking at those weekly cycles, um, as well. Yeah. To, to yeah. Adaptation, like you were saying. I think the other thing as well. Yeah, and it's it's training the person in front of you, like yes. two of the. Yeah. yeah. Training training the person in front of you rather than what it is we expect to occur, you know? Because like if they say for instance with this with this young lady is nineteen or twenty maybe. Unbelievable work ethic. Work, work it's, it's he's one of these guys you gotta hold the reins back because he just puts in he just wants to do more, 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 more. Like and um with guys when it comes to training people, like there's there's two guys that that spring to mind as as coaches that I've I'm taking in a lot of content from over the last year or so, maybe. And one of them is from the running world. It's your man, Steve Magnus, you know, the science of running. Yeah. You ever listen to his, he's a great podcast. And another guy is, um, um, Mike Tusherer, Mike Tusherer from the powerlifting world. He, he runs a company, reactive training systems. And I, I both, I kind of see two of those lads as kind of, 
thinking quite similar about how it is they approach training. So rather than approach training from a fixed kind of modality in terms of we do this program for this amount of miles or an example would be um, a running world example. So I, I actually live with runners. I live with a couple of, a couple of runners and we have done a lot of chats about running and running culture. And we chat about a lot of running training and we were only chatting recently about to, to I was chatting to one of his housemates about, this is an example now of the opposite of Steve Magnus's thinking, I suppose. And what I, what I think it, what, what I understand his thinking to be around training is this, uh, runner who one of my housemates knows who kind of forced a certain mileage because they thought that that uh, uh, for a few consecutive weeks because it was because they thought that that particular mileage was necessary to compete at the level that they want to compete at whereas there's this there's this lack of awareness for example that let's say someone is running a hundred mile week like a hundred mile week isn't what allows someone to compete at a particular marathon pace. Like it's not the mileage that drives the adaptation. It's the fact that that person is so fit for that modality that a hundred miles a week is necessary to induce enough of a stress to drive further adaptation. Whereas that hundred miles happens to be in that Goldilocks zone for that person. But that, that Goldilocks zone of like, say, training that is that you can actually adapt to in a positive manner that is, if you think about that as like a goldilocks zone and then if you go below that amount of training volume and or intensity then that's say sub-adaptive and you go above that training volume or intensity and that's maladaptive i, I rob that terminology off a sports scientist uh, greg knuckles who works in the kind of powerlifting world but if, if you apply it to running that it's not that 100 miles a week is what's making this person fit because there happened to something magic about running a hundred miles. It's that they happen to be so fit. A hundred miles is necessary to drive adaptation. Whereas if they were less fit, 90 miles would drive adaptation until they built back up, for example. So it's the, it's the inverse way of looking at it. Instead of, a, that's, instead of a particular mileage being magic, it's like that type of that, all that mileage is, is necessary to drive adaptation because they're already so fit. And less than that wouldn't drive further adaptation potentially. You know? Yeah. No, I so it's I, kind of like Yeah. I think that's interesting, Karen, because maybe even the like you're saying there, the hundred miles could be too much. Like for me, a few years ago, um I had my VO two max tested and it was like fifty four, fifty five, something like that. Pretty good, but could be better. Uh was training probably ninety to hundred kilometers a week of running. Um, was constantly tired, constantly felt like shit. The following year, uh, dialed that back to 60 to 70 kilometers at my peak, probably average around 55 over the course of six months. Threw in some weightlifting twice a week, some jiu-jitsu, some yoga, ran only four times a week, maybe five at the most. VO2 max went from 54 to 69 Mm-hmm. right on top of that yeah. i repeated the same run race i was training for which is a hundred kilometer run across the mountains year one 16 hours year two 13 hours 42 two and nearly two and a half hours off the time yeah you see what i mean so for me that worked because i know if i was strong and i was also not only not only was I getting good adaptation from less kilometers, but I was varying my training every day, which was allowing me to recover from the running, build strength, 
build, you know, probably good skeletal strength, muscular strength, allow myself to recover from that run and then do something else. So I was constantly varying my training stimulus, which all kind of led to a benefit in the outcome. And I wasn't, I actually really enjoyed that. And I didn't feel really tired. And then I applied that to a hundred mile run at altitude and finished that run as well. So you don't have to be running, you know, crazy amounts. You know, it's that old thing. It's the old adage, isn't it? Work smarter, not harder. Yeah, hundred percent. Because it's not just, it's not just the like. For example, I think an example with running would be that it's it's not just the the kind of I don't know what would you say. There's this, I think there's kind of a misconception that a lot of the, the in the running world, just from living with runners and and hearing them talk about running culture and tell me about kind of and I'd ask questions because and and the two of them really really good runners and one of them actually is a sports scientist masters in um, human performance as well so we have some great chats and there seems to be this in the running world this kind of a mentality where there's this kind of obsession with the kind of I don't know what you call it the physiological adaptations like it's all about red blood cells it's all about VO2 max and but there's not the acknowledgement or the same attention paid on mass to things like running efficiency and how how efficient am I like how how much energy am I leaking how much energy am I wasting are my feet hitting the ground like a soggy tomato or my feet hitting the ground like a bouncy ball like what what way am I actually moving how much it and and that that can potentially mean that you're expending less energy if you're more efficient, if your mechanics are a little bit better or you're that bit fresher, your nervous system is that bit fresher for each run. So the meters, even though that your, your potential kilometers per week are lower, those kilometers are of a much higher quality in terms of the good movement patterns and mechanics that you're potentially ingraining because you're that bit fresher for each run, as well as having just a, the general force production capabilities potentially because you're doing more strength training and that you're overall, you have that extra little bit of tendon stiffness maybe, or that extra little bit of strength to weight ratio. That means that every stride you take costs that extra little bit of an extra little bit less bit of energy relative to your absolute ability to produce force. Maybe there's contributing factors from there as well, but it's, it's far more than just miles, you know, miles or total kilometers per week. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's yeah. like you see a lot of runners and they end up getting caught up in that mentality and they break themselves down. They end up with stress fractures, the female runners ending up with the female triad. And yeah, and it's just from doing too much miles, not eating enough calories, not eating enough protein. You know, you break them. You know where you see the best example of this, Karen, is, you know, I, I think, and I've been talking to somebody about this recently, you get into the swimming pool and there's squad groups on and you look up the lanes and I'm in the second slowest lane and I'm at the bottom of that second slowest lane as well. So I'm, you know, I'm really at the tail end. You know, I'm in the last sort of 10 to 15% of the, of the entire group. But I look over to lanes that are in the fast lanes and there's people over there that swim. And when you look underneath the water, you know, I'm 77, 78 kilos, five foot 10. I'm not, you know, complete Slim Jim Magoo with a six pack, but I'm not, you know, waddling around either. But when I look over to the lanes in the fast lanes, the people in there that are swimming, some of them look like polar bears underneath the water. And the reason they look like polar bears is they're so heavy and so out of shape, but they can still swim because to your point, the technique is there. The skills develop. Yeah. Is there. And they're so efficient. And they're so efficient. And to me, that defies that. But it just also shows me how much I need to work on my technique, 
Yeah. How much technique is part of it? So my underlying my underlying benefit so far, similar to Pavel Tatsulin or Brian McKenzie and Power Speed Endurance or even Mark Ripito or Dan John or any of these guys, you do grease the groove. Grease the groove, but you do need strength. You need strength, you need yeah. ability, you need flexibility. These all underpin performance. But then on top mm. of like MMA, jiu-jitsu, boxing, after that, you know, I often think that strength, flexibility, all those things is 20% of my base. And then the rest of it is 80% sports specific. Now that's just my own mm. rough guide for me. And then when I go and do jujitsu, you know, or swimming, I have that base underneath me from yoga, kettlebells, body weight stuff. And um, that helps me maintain function and form whilst I'm undertaking that task or learning that skill. 100%. And you, I think we, coming from with with this high level jujitsu, I mean, like they don't for people who are listening to this maybe and don't come from a jujitsu background, to say that they don't hand out brown belts in jujitsu is a fucking understatement. So I, you you would understand more than anyone how important movement efficiency and mechanics actually is. Like it's 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 it's, it's so and it's so obvious in jujitsu. Like you get you you can you either you either get the sweep or you don't. And you either get the, the 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 positional escape or you don't, and it just comes down to very precise things. But the more precise you are, the less effort it takes to do something. You know, if you're you're looking for some kind of like a uh, this is my white belt jiu-jitsu example now, but say like a, a mounted sweep or you know where you block the right arm or, or somehow control the, the right wrist and block their right ankle and driving and bridging off my right hip to tip them over to my left. As an example, like the, the the better you can destabilize them and shut them down, the easier the sweep comes off, and the less effort it takes to do it. You know, and it's, it's the same principle in in any other sport. The more efficient you are, the tidier your mechanics. The more precise you are, the less relative energy it costs to do it. Yeah, like um, the, the guest on previous to you, um, Kieran was Lachlan Giles, who you may know. Lachlan Giles coaches Craig Jones new top-level jiu-jitsu guy and Lachlan has competed mm. in the UC, probably he's definitely in the top you know three or four jiu-jitsu players in Australia and probably in his weight class in the top 10 in the world um, he's been on the mm. Eddie Bravo Invitational he's been on a number of high-level stuff and Lachlan also has a PhD in physiotherapy as well so um, you know we were talking about you know jiu-jitsu in the in the last episode Kieran when you're training these guys you know with core constitution rugby teams or you're training individuals, you're training herders. How much of sort of sleep kind of messaging do the guys look for or how much do you give them or how important is it when you are um, looking at adaptation to trend stimulus? I think for me, it's when it comes, especially when it comes to training individuals, an example of how strongly I think about sleep is that I honestly don't coach morning, early morning clients anymore. So I would have in the past, especially for up to last year, even I would have coached like 7am PT sessions and 7am group sessions for, for a, a gym here in Cork, a really, really nice facility. It's actually, as a side note, if you ever do come to Cork, it's likely where I'd, where you'd, where you'd end up going doing DJJ, it's class places, five or six black belts and, uh, bunch of brown belts and purple belts there. It's really BJJ Cork is the, is the spot. But um, 
But anyway, in that gym, I, I won't even coach early morning clients anymore because you know, you know, I've been coaching people now for probably eight years when I first started. Eight years ago, I started coaching people while I was in my third year in university. And very rarely have I ever met people who consistently respect sleep enough to get in, to get to bed early enough to actually be able to get benefit from getting up at 5.45 or 6 to be able to do an early morning training session before work. And I don't, I, can't, I actually can't think of anyone who, who consistently did that from like a, a PT perspective. And maybe it was just the, the client base I ended up working with. But I often see where people just, they, they dip in and out and do it for a few weeks or a few months maybe and then have to stop. Or, so I think very, very strongly about it. Like from a, a recovery perspective, I treat sleep in the, the, the big three for recovery to keep it really simple for lads. We sleep, so essentially the determinants of recovery, sleep, calories, and protein. And you can obviously, you could chuck in, which is, this is a bit more nuanced and a bit more difficult to discuss, I suppose, just because it's going to be so different for each person, but stress management as a kind of a fourth one, maybe, to kind of just minimize the overall allostatic load on the person but yeah it's one of the big three and to put in like an example would be say for the sigma clients especially we track it so because i can't we have the resources to do that and and it's part of what we do and what we use it to guide programming and use it to guide even nutritional considerations which is like on our track we have these um users excited tracking documents and one of the metrics that we track is sleep hours or estimated sleep hours for each day and we particularly make a point of tracking that every day. So like we track metrics like uh, morning weight, calories. And this is for an example for a fighter. Like if I have a fighter, and with, the, with fighters especially, because they're so highly motivated and oftentimes have left themselves quite a lot of weight to lose, which I could get into if you, if you want to at some stage. But we get quite precise. But even for people who aren't fighters, basic metrics we'd look to track would, would be morning weight, calories, protein, and sleep, and maybe steps. And they're kind of basic metrics that we track even for regular people because we want we, we make a point of tracking it for a, a number of reasons. And from my perspective, it's not just for our programming so we can see, okay, the, the, the sleep hours were down for a few nights in a row and their weight is maybe up. Or in, we've come, I've come across some interesting stuff, especially with fighters, with, with guys and, and water retention response potentially to to a couple of or even one or two consecutive nights of poor sleep some pretty dramatic water retention and stuff it's been very interesting but um but then even from a from from building their awareness around it so i think even even the fact of being aware of the fact that sleep is a metric important enough that we would want to track it automatically potentially leads to people making better decisions around sleep. So it's, it's one of the major things we drive, to be honest, and end up talking to pretty much every client, every Sigma client about it. And then with teams, when it comes to discussing recovery and discussing training, it's one of the big three things that we communicate, the big three pillars that I communicate to the lads I work with from a team perspective, as I said, alongside calories and protein. So it's, it's massive. It's, it's, it's enormous. It's actually even for myself, I don't, another reason I won't coach morning clients anymore because I, I've, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to set my lifestyle up so that all my in-person coaching is in the evening times because I want to have that. I respect sleep so much that I want to be able to have that luxury 
to not have to use an alarm clock and to be able to, if I go to bed at 12, if I wake up at 8 or 9 or 10, whenever my eyes open, they open, you know. Yeah. And so massive, massive, man. Just on that, on that personal note then, Karen, on your free kind of schedule where you go to bed and just wake up and when you feel it, what's your sort of, your time you go to bed and what time do you wake up at um, each day and is that consistent without, without the alarm clock? Um, yeah, it would be, to be honest. I, I, my, it's something that I'm actually going to be working on to pull it back to go to bed earlier, but I actually end up finding that the way my my lifestyle is currently set up, when I do get home from coaching, I find myself quite productive at nighttime from a, a writing perspective and from a, a planning perspective. And I often end up doing a lot of kind of journaling or writing or programming and thinking about breaking down the sessions um, about like writing down what happened in the sessions and particular things to take away learning wise as well as art, writing articles so I end up not getting to bed till 1 or 2 a.m. most nights and then probably end up getting up at 10 a.m. in the morning probably as, and that's consistent but it's 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 something that I'm aware of that it, I, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm particularly aware of it because I I'd prefer to be able to potentially leave that stuff for the morning and just instead make my um try and sync up a little bit more with some with some sunlight. And something I've been thinking a bit about myself the last the last week or so in particular. So that's basically been my my pattern. But it's just and it's just a habit I've gotten into of of getting work done at nighttime with the house is dead quiet, there's no one around it. So I wonder, is it a habit you've gotten into or you're more of an extreme owl chronotype where you like to go to bed late and get up late and maybe that's your kind of phenotype, chronotype, um, it's what you what you are internally? To be honest, I, I don't know. I, I've, um, I, I, I'm definitely not the kind of person who enjoys going to bed very early, you know, like um, like going to bed. Like There was a time when I was when, when I used to be going to bed at, you know, nine nine thirty and getting up at five five thirty for for coaching, and I just to, that just caused me. I remember just specifically causing stress. You know that it just didn't didn't feel it didn't feel good anyway, and it and it's the, the stress of um of potentially missing an alarm call often caused the the sleep to be of quite a poor quality. You know, we wake up a few times during the night and that kind of thing, but it very well potentially is the case. You know. That I, I'm not sure to be honest. I, I, is it possible to get to get? Is there is there tests I can do or any kind of protocol I could follow to identify if that was the case? Out of yeah. curiosity, you're the you're the expert here. It's yeah, about ten grand, but I can do it on the cheap for about nine grand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I th- look. I tell you, I don't, I don't think I want to know that much. <laughs> spit spit in an envelope and send it over to me, and I'll have a look. <laughs> what, have, what I think. First of all, I think you've just actually clarified it for yourself there and what you've said. You didn't like going to bed early and you didn't like getting up early. You had too many awakenings. But if you go to bed at sort of 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning and get up at 10, you perform pretty well. So I think straight away, mm. how you feel as a person and as an athlete and how you live your life, there first of all is why I'd say it. The second thing then is you could do like a questionnaire, like a morning and evening questionnaire, which would look at, you know, your chronotype. Um, you could also look at like cortisol secretion, melatonin secretion, and really get a good profile. But to be honest, Karen, like, you know, if, if that's the way you are, if you, if you go to bed and wake up without the imposition of an alarm clock, you're productive, you feel good, 
you're not needing copious amounts of coffee to get through the day or other stimulants. Stimulants. I'd say, mate, it's fine. You're an old chronotype. Like, if you look at um, anthropology type of thinking, is like you know, in a section of the community, let's take a hundred people. You're going to have maybe ten or twelve, ten to twenty percent of those people that are going to be morning types. Then you're going to have maybe ten to twenty of those people are going to be evening types or extreme owls. And then you're going to have people in the middle that are going to be just average. And the reason we may be designed like this is just from, you know, sort of caveman days was to keep an eye out for hunters and, and predators. And so you have more people kind of alert at different times. So that's, that's kind of a theory that's out there, but completely normal. And I think if, you, if you're performing well, you're completely fine. So I, I would keep doing it. And then your own experiment there is your own control. Yeah, like for me, so I, had to, I had to move to a different room and plug the charger in. But yeah, like that very well may be the case. Like I, I honestly find it when I can set my lifestyle up like this, and so long as I'm not in a period of time in which I'm dieting for a particular reason to to lean up or to make weight for any fights, which I don't have to do anymore. I honestly, I I can't. I I find it very difficult to overdo training. Like I find it very hard to overtrain when I can just wake up when I wake up. And that's it. Like I, if I, I sometimes I just I just all that end, all that ends up happening is when I do a particularly hard session and intensities are quite high, volumes are quite high. I might just end up sleeping straight through for nine or ten hours, and it just happens. And in other nights, if I if I coming off the back of a rest day or two consecutive rest days, I might end up sleeping consecutively for seven and a half eight hours. And feel great. Whereas the harder I train and the more voluminous the training, the more I'd sleep consecutively. And I only really know that because I don't use alarm clocks for the most part. So the the other thing, Karen, as well is which you know, which may be a factor. Do you find that changes across the year in Ireland? Obviously, in Ireland we get extremes of light and dark. So in the in the summer it can be bright, like you know, half four in the morning, four o'clock, and then it can be bright all the way through to eleven o'clock at night. Whereas in the winter it can be not bright till nine o'clock in the morning and then be dark again, you know, at half three, four. Do you find that changes across the year, your sleep patterns or makes it easier or harder depending on that light? To be honest, I haven't, I haven't noticed it. I, part of the reason I'm not, I see one part of, part of my habit in the morning when I wake up is to, is I have a, a, an east facing bedroom. So part of the habit when I wake up is to, straight away crack the curtains and just get my eyes looking out the window, trying to get some sunlight on the eyes as soon as I wake up. I'm not sure of the, the, the efficacy behind that, but it's just a habit I've kind of got into is to just be looking out the window roughly at the direction that the, the sun happens to be in just to kind of, it just feels, I don't know if it's placebo, but it just feels like it kind of kicks things off a little bit. And then I'd also make a point of, I'd, I'd take um, vitamin D3 supplementation all year round. <laughs> which I'm not sure the kind of the, an impact that that would make on, on circadian rhythms or sleep cycles, but from a, a mood perspective and a performance perspective, anecdotally from a, my N equals one, it's been enormous. So I, I know from, from a, for years I would have potentially had like maybe what would have been construed as you know, like the kind of winter blues kind of a situation mm. where there's just that, that, that kind of a, bad weather, rainy day, you know, consecutive bad weather, that there's just, that moods aren't as good, energy levels aren't as good. Whereas for the last four or five years, consecutive, it was consistently 
during wintertime periods taking vitamin D3 supplementation. It just seems not to have been the case. So I'm not sure, again, if it's if it's that that's a stimulus or for that mood or energy, if this is supplementation or if it's just lifestyles are different and my my because my life potentially have set things up in a way that's really enjoyable, maybe that's a different impact. And I'm not sure, but that's just me thinking out loud. Yeah, I think there's a few interesting variables there. So first of all, like um, to take your first point about cracking the curtains and looking into the into the sunlight, so to speak, or getting any natural light. So inside our inside our brain at the base of the hypothalamus, there's this thing called the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nuclei, which is synchronized by light and dark cycles. So that's like your master time and clock for sleep. So by you getting sort of natural light to be received via the eyeball, sends it into the brain, stimulates, you know, the increase of cortisol, suppresses melatonin, definitely recommend it. And the more natural light you can get during the day, the better it's going to be for you to get outside. Now, obviously that becomes mm. a problem in countries like Australia because you're going to get sunburned so much and so on. But even if you have ambient natural light, it's really good. Open up the curtains while you're in a room. You know, it's not very good to have people working in these type of dungeon offices where there's no light. You want to have as much natural light as possible throughout the day. And the other thing that does as well is that can serve as a as a as nearly like a barrier to electronic devices. So if you are using electronic devices late in the evening, there is some research around suggesting that the more natural light you get exposed to during the day, you can minimize or negate some of the effects of those electronic device uses in the evening because you're so synchronized, right? That's that's interesting. That's one part of that. So and that's kind of being thrown around a bit at the moment. In terms of vitamin D, the vitamin D issue is the low vitamin D levels in humans is generally associated with people who have, you know, low sleep, right? So are less sleep or more disrupted sleep. Now, this seems to be more common in areas where the light and dark cycles are extreme. So like the Arctic Circle, for example, far north Canada, Norway, and so on, the seasonal um, associated disorder. And I know definitely when I lived in Ireland, I definitely had that in the middle of winter because going around, you know, scratching your arse, uh, with a hood over your head in the middle of December in Ireland is not nice. Uh, I tell you that. Mm-hmm. About 45 degree angle from wind and rain and you soon get pissed off and get depressed. So you'll take any sort of substance to make you feel better. So vitamin, <laughs> D, vitamin D will definitely help with that and should improve the sleep as well, but should be taken at night after, um, you know, with food. So I'm, so I'm not sure when you're actually taking that, but it should be taken sort of like with your dinner at night time. That's the best time. To yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I was kind of I kind of sporadic when I take it in terms of I, I know it, I take it every few days and it could be upwards of like nine, depending on how infrequently I've taken it, it could be anywhere between nine, 15,000 IU. So I've got this 3,000 IU spray. So every second or third day, I'd have a whack of it. But it's just, I suppose, if, if it's at night, it's the best time to take it. I'll make a point of doing that. And is there, what's the reason for that, for taking it at, at nighttime in particular? Well, it's best taken at night because um, the, the hormone for vitamin D3 is best absorbed at night, is my understanding. And I'm not um, an mm. neurologist, but, you know, my understanding is that it's best absorbed at nighttime. And so, yeah, that's, that's about as far as my knowledge goes on that one. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, yeah. Just like with, it's the other interesting one as well, Karen, is iron. So a lot of people with sleep problems, you know, would move their legs at night and you might find this with athletes, the kind of urge to move your legs during the day is restless legs, but moving them at night is, is periodic leg movement disorder, for example. So this paddling of the legs and that's, that can be also linked to low iron levels for um, depletion of magnesium. And so again, this is interesting because 
the timing of iron. And if you look at Peter Peeling from the University of Western Australia, he does a lot of work on this. The timing of iron is interesting. So for example, as a, as a rough rule of thumb, if you train at nighttime, you do most of your exercise in the evening, let's say 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., then you should be consuming the iron in the morning with food. If you exercise in the morning, then you should be consuming the iron at nighttime. So there's a time mm. for that to be absorbed and, and take effect. Now with magnesium, for example, powder magnesium, which we recommend because it's better absorbed through GI tract, that's best taken after dinner at nighttime as well because magnesium and zinc show to have been shown to increase stage three sleep, which is deep sleep, which is important for growth hormone. So if you're looking for mm. there as well, magnesium would be another one to do at nighttime to help with your sleep, particularly on heavy training. How much magnesium of curiosity? About five milligrams. Yeah, just dilute Interesting. You can get these powder form ones. And so you want to just dilute it in water, have it just after dinner, and then go to bed with that. It definitely helps with recovery, particularly as we get older as well. Um, we see, see a lot of people who do shift work and exercise. Um, in the mining industry, for example, I do a lot of consulting work, mining oil and gas. A lot of guys go away for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, um, you know, and work remotely. And they're working 12-hour days. And then they've got limited time to exercise, maybe an hour in the evening. So by the time to get up, get their breakfast, you know, that's an hour gone. Then it's 12, 12 and a half hour day, get back to the camp, you know, 30, 14 hours, exercise for about an hour. And then they've got to really try to, you know, reduce that, you know, sort of have effective utilization of the bed and then get into bed, get asleep really quick. And so, you know, powder magnesium can really help with increasing the, 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 the sort of the ability to fall asleep. A lot of people say it, it helps them fall asleep quicker. I don't know about the efficacy of that, but hey, look, if it's a placebo and it's working, it's good. But definitely what mm. the is less awakenings at night. And part of that could be as well, if you're working you know, excessive hours and you're exercising as well, you could be fairly depleted in terms of like electrolytes um, and trace minerals. Mm. Uh, this could be helping replace and that could be causing the benefits. Uh, that could be leading to the benefits in sleep. But for me, like I even take it myself in heavy training loads because um, uh, during heavy training periods. Um, so we train on Wednesday night for swimming between seven and nine. And I don't really like that. It's very late. And we swim like three and a half to four kilometers. And so I find it really hard to sleep. So I come back, have some food and consume, consume magnesium as well. And it definitely helps with the quality of the sleep after that training. Very interesting. I must, keep, I must, I must pick up some magnesium supplementation because there's... Out of curiosity, you mentioned the miners there in the shift work. Is there any particular, is you could potentially write a, write a book on this particular subject alone, but I, I happen to know quite a few guards and uh, nurses who end up working shifts. And is there any particular supplementation, kind of a protocol or, or uh, even lifestyle protocol for when they're switching shifts, say from nights to days or days to nights to kind of re-sync a sleep cycle? So the first thing is guards, what people listen, is police. We call them the guards. <laughs> 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 I think we only have about three listeners in Ireland. Most people listen from the States. So it's the guard. <laughs> it comes from an Irish word, the guardy, Chiacana, which is an Irish word. Don't ask me what Shia Khan stands for. I know what I used to say. Yeah, Guardians of the peace, I think it means. Oh, it is a, all right. Guardian Shia Khan. I'm pretty sure it means guardians of the peace. That is a, well, I keep moving on that one because I'll tell you, I had a different analogy for that when I was younger, <laughs> when I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, speak, speaking of, of Guardian Shia Khan, I, I remember a very funny story of um, 
you know, being younger in Athlone, walking out of a nightclub, and we'd all spill out into this one street, and there'd be takeaway joints there, and people be getting food, and you know, everybody would spill out into the road like at two o'clock, and you know, people be queuing for taxis, and it was all in this one area. And of course, one of the guard guardy cars was parked at the end of the taxi rank, and we were all in the military at the time. And one of our friends from the military, who I won't mention his name, jumped into the back of the, the guard car and said, "You know where to go." And they were like, "This isn't a taxi. Get out!" And he goes, "Well, you look like taxi drivers to me, lads. Chop, chop. Get to work. <laughs> I, I, I pay my taxes, so bring me home." Yeah. The last, the last I saw him was coming out of a cop shop the next morning. You know, he spent a night in the. <laughs> <laughs> so um, back to your back to your question. Uh, that's a very vivid memory. Um, back to your question. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question. But it depends, Karen, because it depends on the schedule. But in, mm. what principles it should be working towards is if you're switching from what we actually look at a lot in shift work is the design of the shift work. So people should be on forward operating rosters. So they start on day shifts and then move on to night shifts. So we never start them on night shifts, then moves to day shifts. So we go day shift and night shift or days or a morning shift onto an evening shift onto a night shift. So we always should be rotating that way. In general as well, we want to give them at least 48 hours off after the night shift before giving them, bringing them back to do additional work. But in terms of adaptation, it would depend on the roster cycle and the roster design. So mm. like I know some nurses do permanent night shift. And that's not recommended at all. And interestingly enough, back in 2008, the World Health Organization determined that type 2, that shift work was a type 2A carcinogen, which means that it's highly probable that it causes cancer. And this was based upon a lot of data that came out of nurses, where nurses who had worked permanent night shift for more than 20 years had developed breast cancer. So working permanent night shift is definitely not recommended. The other thing as well is that... And how much of that could be because they, they just didn't have the, the knowledge or the education on how to set their lifestyle up to be able to still get sufficient amounts of sleep in a dark room and expose themselves to light, even if it was artificially. You know, like how much of that could potentially be mitigated by, say, blackout blinds and having a routine as soon as they are, are like putting on blue light blocking glasses on their way home in the car. That kind of, you know, like... Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. However, Karen, I think the thing to remember is that, like we said at the start, we are biological creatures. We were never designed to be awake at night. We are what's called yeah. animals. We were never designed to operate at night. And numerous studies have shown, mm. and also as well, you can have some adaptation, slight adaptation. Like, for example, you being an extreme owl person would be probably better on night shift than most other people. But for me, I'm more of a lark. I'm desperate on night shift and I always have been. It absolutely kills me, right? So you have this, you know, phenotype um, predisposition to different types of shifts. But yes, you could override it, but you will never get used to working night shift. It is completely impossible to, to get completely used to working night shift. All those things are, are, are become desynchronized. So when I spoke about the SCN in the brain earlier on, not only is that master timing clock in your head, just all the rest of your body is linked to that. So heart, lungs, digestive system, they all have what's called peripheral clocks and they're all linked mm. to the SCN. So when the SCN is disrupted, the rest of it's disrupted. And we see in studies as well that people who work shift work generally gain an extra five to 10 kilos in year one of doing shift work. And those people who work night shift basically are heavier than those people who work on day shift 
Now, mm. so if it ever causes cancer, it does bring in a whole host of other problems. Because if you get heavier, you develop type 2 type two diabetes. If you get heavier, you also develop obstructive sleep apnea, which is a cessation of breathing overnight. But also as well, we've seen studies, and Siobhan Banks, who was on the podcast recently, has actually, she's researching sort of nutrition and shift work. And one of the things they've seen in their research is that if me and you, Karen, are the same person, basically the same person, we're both 30 years of age, six foot tall, 100 kilos, you work, you work days and I work nights. We both consume 2,000 calories per day. We consume the exact same meals. But guess what? Just by virtue of me working night shift, I'm still going to gain weight. Mm. Because... Yeah, it, would, um, it could potentially... I can imagine it could affect things like the... Especially with regards to the, the calorie imbalance created may very well be down to factors like meat, like people that are just... They're fidgeting a bit less... You know that they're they're just generally as well as I come across some stuff on on sleep increasing insulin resistance like lack of sleep. Yeah, I think there was a particular study I came across where it was that six hours of sleep or, or less for six days in a row, and on the seventh day the people had the same insulin sensitivity as type two diabetics. Yeah, it went from totally metabolically normal to type two diabetic blood sugar profile within six days of six hours sleep or less. Yeah. There's a whole host of research on that topic by Ivan Cowder out of mm. University of Chicago and a few others. They've published heaps on that. And so it's not surprising that when you see the obesity epidemic increase in a country, you also see type 2 diabetes and you also see sleep-related breathing disorders that are mm. body weight as well. So you have this kind of negative... Vicious cycle then. Vicious cycle that occurs, you know? And sort of yeah. exercise will help you get out of that because you lose weight and then you know, you can reduce the symptoms of type 2 diabetes and you can also reduce your potential prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea as well. So, yeah, it's it, so coming back to your point on shift workers, it's, it's, it is difficult and dependent without not knowing the roster, but also you got to look at the strategic use of caffeine as well, when they're consuming caffeine, when they're not. We also have to look mm. at demand across the shift as well because you don't always get the same hours of productivity per hour of day as you do at night. So for example, in my TEDx talk last year in Perth, I actually discussed this. There's a landmark paper that shows productivity by hour of day and it actually follows a very similar profile of a circadian rhythm. So basically mm. people do sweet FA between sort of three and six o'clock in the morning. And if you've worked night shift yourself, mate, or anybody else has, you, we all know that unless the task is automated, you know, we're not, we're not basically doing much. We're taking extra breaks. We're doing we're doing monotonous tasks. We're doing something that's not cognitively engaging. There's very few people that I know, if any, that are up, you know, writing Stephen King type novels at three o'clock in the morning, unless they're coked out of their head. Um, or they're, you know, like that's... Or Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, exactly, coked out of his head. Um, so, <laughs> so like, all you've got to, we've got to kind of look at this from a chronobiology perspective and look at the hours of, of day. And, and what were you, what were, what were good at different times? Like you were saying about doing early morning training sessions, like the best time for humans to do exercise is actually between four and seven in the evening. That's when we're going to have the best cardiovascular efficiency, the best strength, the best power that all happens. in. Mm. But in the morning, we're better off from a cognitive perspective. So between nine and 12 in the morning, we have better cognitive performance, but in the evening, then we have better physical performance. So mm. by people getting up early in the morning to do exercise, we're actually curtailing or reducing that sleep duration and thereby affecting our performance during the day. 
And like you said as well, Karen, that study, if you're only getting four or five hours sleep a night, same insulin sensitivity as someone with type 2 diabetes, your, your leptin and ghrelin, which are appetite regulators, are probably completely out of whack. So you'll probably start overeating during the day or consuming sugary products to get through the day. But you know what? We got up at four o'clock and we did our exercise. You hit the metric in one area, but you're minusing all the other metrics because you're gaining weight, yeah. you're, shit, you're not product productive, you know, you're not sticking to your diet plan. You know, people think they can burn the candle at every end, and it's just not possible. Yeah, and, and burn the candle at both ends and put the candle into an oven as well. Yeah, that's what I'm you saying. Know, like, at, at every end, because yeah. it's like a spoke, you know, for some people yeah. on a bicycle. Yeah, and it's, 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 I couldn't agree more, man. And it's that, it's that big picture look, but something else that occurs to me, I've, I've been particularly interested in, um, in uh, behavior of late, and I've, I've gone, you know, I, I make a point of being very interested in, so as a as a psychology and philosophy wave of my pay grade and um, intellectual pay grade, and uh, one of the things I come across is uh, a lot of uh, Robert Sapolsky's work, oh, yeah. and on stress and uh, potentially what also might be happening just occurred to me there from a sleep perspective is um, that could potentially would this would this be a potential mechanism as well for weight gain in that it could be chronically elevated um, as well as leptin and ghrelin getting negatively affected from a hunger perspective that there's also a chronically elevated maybe cortisol levels and that our hpa axis is kind of chronically switched on a little bit more than it should be which potentially shuts down impulse control in the frontal lobe in kind of long-term planning where people are more likely to maybe go for the short-term pleasure in exchange for the long-term negative because they're more likely to get that takeaway on the way home or more likely they're just their impulse control is impaired yeah, again, above my pay grade there for that one as well, but what yeah. you do know is that when cortisol is increased, what happens then is actually has the inverse relationship to melatonin. So this is why we say to people like mm. work or people, you know, people doing shift work or people, you know, working on high stress jobs, we say to them, look, if you have to use like electronic devices in the evening and you really want to be on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, or you want to look on Facebook or you want to watch, you know, you want to watch Netflix, that's great. But I'll tell you what not to do is don't get on your work computer and start doing emails because what happens then is people get stressed out. They start getting all you know annoyed, increasing cortisol. What does cortisol do? It suppresses melatonin. Mm. You then, you then cannot, it then affects your ability to fall asleep. So, you know, there's definitely an inverse relationship between those two. Um, so I think anything where you're artificially um, increasing cortisol in the even, you're going to be affecting your ability to fall asleep. And so whatever stimulates that, whether it be exercise and so on, you may have trouble sleeping for a few hours after that. So this is why many people, in that example I was saying about on Wednesday evening doing the swimming group, many people can't swim after, sorry, sleep after that swim, which finishes at nine o'clock until at least midnight. So, you know, because you need about, you get that big spike in body temperature, cortisol, it can take, you know, two to three hours to relax for sleep to uh, occur. So if you jump on your email at 10 o'clock at night and you're like, I'm going to answer this dickhead who's driving me crazy all week. And I, I respond to my boss because he's giving me the shits and I'm going to like, you know, then you start reading an email or looking at a business case or whatever it might be. Well, that's all going to, you know, increase your cortisol level and you're going to redline and then you can't fall asleep for hours. This is why if you look at Amy Bender, what she talks about, and I, I'm a big advocate of this as well, and it kind of ties back into the Stoic philosophy stuff, is it, and what Jordan Peterson talks about, is about getting yourself in order. 
So when I finish my day, mm. I make a plan for the next day. So I'm making my plan today for tomorrow. I get my clothes ready this evening for tomorrow. I know what's going to happen. I know what my meals are during the week. I know what my exercise regime is going to be. I know what work I've got planned out for the next week and even out for four weeks in some cases. So I have all those things planned. So when I do go to bed, I'm not going to bed with 50 million things in my mind. You know, I get people kind of saying to me, like there's some hero, I go to bed with a notebook and I wake up and I write down whatever's on my mind. And I go, that's ridiculous. Why don't you get your notebook before you go to bed and write down all the things that are on your mind? Yeah. Act of journaling or writing down or making a to-do list or planning out your week, getting your clothes ready, having meals pre-prepared, whatever it might be, they all take away those stresses. And it's what Dan John talks about in, you know, he's, he, he just wears, I think, the same clothes every day. Um, as in the same colors. He's just got all black t-shirts or black polo shirts. He talks about sharking things in your life. So there are less things you have to think about so it can free you up to do the good things. And I think the same when it comes to sleep. Get all these 100%. negative things out. But when you go to bed with that, yeah. When you, when you can make a point of going to bed with a clear conscience, yeah, it's quite, it, it's unbelievable. I think it's, 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 it's undeniable. As much as, un, as much as anything can be undeniable that you sleep better when you have a clear conscience where you have your T's crossed, your eyes dotted, you've got done that day what it is you wanted to get done, you're ready to go for the next day, you're that bit more relaxed. You know, it's a, it's a major part of, um, of my evening, for example, to have a, a routine, you know, with regards to a sleep routine. Like the phone is on airplane mode for the last few hours, so it can't go off. Then when it comes to, to going to bed, I have this. The, back, the, the light bulb is actually out at the moment, but I have this hippie, dippy salt lamp. This is really kind of a, I don't know what you call it, like a kind of a, a, a dim kind of a yellow light. It's really relaxing. That goes on. The big lights go off. Uh, brush the teeth into bed. 10 minutes of a 10 minute block of meditation where I'd use a, a timer on a watch rather than the phone screen. Mm. And if I need to set the alarm, I'd set the, I try to set the alarm using an actual alarm clock rather than looking at the phone, the bright phone screens to use the alarm. And then it's after that 10 minute meditation block, it's a, a fiction, fiction reading as this kind of like sequence of things to do to dial down. And as a result, it often takes me months and months and months to read even small fiction books because I only get through a page or two before I'm unconscious, which is a good thing. But it's part of this sequence of things that just results in that repeatedly results in very quick, very quickly getting off to sleep, you know, and it's, and it, and it, but that's not possible if I found, if the conscience isn't clear, like if there's things you procrastinated on or things you haven't done that day or to-do lists that you haven't made for the following day and this thing still bouncing around in your head, that stuff, is it's imperative to get that stuff taken care of and lists made prior, I find, or else the ability to relax and actually enjoy that fiction book isn't there. It's just, it's, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't even, I, I, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And, you know, coming back to some of the stuff that like Jordan Peterson talks about or stoic philosophy or some of that stuff, I even find I actually sleep worse when I've kind of had a, a shitty day. So if I have a day where I'm not really getting on top of my tasks, I'm not getting stuff done, I'm not making progress in my life, I haven't exercised, you know, I've had a bit of a, a shitty day, so to speak, then my sleep mm. worse. But when I've had a bit of stress during the day, I've got some stuff done, I've been against the clock, I've had this bit of a stimulus, I've achieved something, I've kind of, I've made some strides in my life, I've done something, I've had some good interactions. 
then I feel like I've achieved something. I sleep better as well. Yeah. This is an interesting yeah. thing that people don't even don't explore. And I often say, I often see with a lot of people, this is just anecdotally, a lot of people who don't have their life in order don't have their sleep in order. So how can mm. you expect your sleep to be good if you can't even get a handle on your day? And yeah. As well to people. If When people ask me for sleep advice, the first thing I say to them is, tell me what happens when you get up in the morning. And they'll go, no, I don't want any help during the day. I want help going to sleep. And I'm like, just tell me about how your day is. What happens when you get up? What do you do? Because it's during the day, we can actually set ourselves up for good sleep. And people kind of look at you and go, I don't understand that. But it's about, again, having this circular type of approach where we look at what we're doing. We look at our tasks, the timing of training, as you spoke about, the timing of consumption of caffeine. You also spoke about calories as well. Are people eating correctly? You know, and, and I'm not a dietitian or nutritionist, but if people are eating junk food all day and then they're having sugar at nighttime and they're, you know, jumping up and down, well, you know, we can start making some improvements there. You know, and we look at the whole day and then we start talking about why they may be having trouble with sleep. And then we go back during the day and we make some tiny tweaks in terms of nutrition, caffeine consumption, timing, alcohol, and so on. Like I get some people caring coming to me who will drink five or six coffees throughout the day. They won't have breakfast. They'll have a sandwich for lunch, maybe a side of potato chips or, you know, hot chips. Then they'll have biscuits at work to snack on. They'll go home. They'll have between four and six alcoholic drinks. Then they'll have, mm. then they'll jump on TV <coughs> and they'll watch that for a while. Then they might look on the internet and then they go to me. I can't and then wonder why they get to sleep. And then they go, I can't sleep and I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> And I'm like, and they're 10 kilos overweight. I'm like, okay, yeah. well, you've just listed out your day. Let's start with one of those things. Let's just even reduce the alcoholic consumption. No, but that helps me get to sleep. And then you go into the whole argument about the science that, yeah, it might help you fall asleep, but it, re it reduces the quality of your sleep. And then you see the light mm. on in front of people. And th this is not related to education care either. This is people who are high-end, high-functioning executives in a lot of cases, masters qualified you know, educated people who make these mistakes. So it's across the board, but sometimes their day is completely out of whack. And so we need to put a bit of structure around it as well. And that's where I think we can get a lot of improvement in the night as well. It's where we look at the actual structure of the day. But I think there's, there's, a, there's an element of it where I think there's, a, there's an element across society of domain-specific rationality where people can be particularly rational and reasonable and logical in certain aspects of their lives and then full of uh, batshit irrationality in other aspects of their lives, <laughs> you know, especially if it's aspects of their lives that they don't necessarily want to change. So I, and I, I don't think that that's assisted too well by the modern medicine. It's the standard narrative in modern medicine is very atomistic. It's very blinkered. It's very, here is a physiological issue and here is a pharmaceutical and or surgical intervention to, to specifically treat the symptoms without necessarily treating or having a look at addressing the potential causes for those symptoms, yeah. you know? So it's very like, this is a problem, this is a drug, as opposed to this is a problem, what are the potential factors that are driving this problem? So rather than just address the symptoms, like give people sleeping tablets and just make them unconscious, as opposed to allow them to actually address the lifestyle factors that may very well be 
decreasing their ability to get into deep sleep and to actually get to sleep and to relax. And, and then they might not ever need any pharmaceutical intervention because they've just addressed the lifestyle factors. So I don't, I don't think that, I think people's um, atomistic viewpoint on certain aspects of health, I think, it's, I think it's so widespread potentially because it's such a major part of the, the standard narrative of, I think, medicine in general to really paint a big picture brush. I know there's obviously exceptions and there's, I'm sure there are really good GPs and doctors who are good at encouraging big picture lifestyle intervention stuff, but that just kind of springs to mind as a potential contributing factor, you know, because you see it a lot in, in training modalities and you see it in personal training where people are, because I, I don't do very much personal training anymore, but it would have before. And people maybe are frustrated that they're not achieving weight loss or maybe they're not achieving any as much muscle gain or strength gain as they'd hope. And when you when we get chatting about the nutrition side of things, they're like, oh, because I tra- I trained, I uh, I you know, and and I actually I had a, I had a tub of Ben and Jerry's, but I went for a half an hour walk afterwards, so it was grand. I kind of walked it off, you know. And there's this kind of un- a lack of awareness, I think, in, in in it's not it's a lack of rationality or reason in certain domains, and potentially some of that is just because of specific education, because of a lack of awareness of calorie balance, for example, or a lack of awareness of basic hormonal stuff, like we mentioned about cortisol and how that suppresses melatonin. But I think part of it as well is, is just some people are not necessarily, they don't necessarily want to change certain lifestyle habits. Yes, they want the benefits that would come anyway if they were to change those lifestyle habits. Like they want to have those five or six drinks yeah, and they, but they also want to be able to sleep really well and wake up feeling really fresh. You know, you know what I attribute so, this to, Karen, a bit. Um, I I attribute this a little bit to the media. You know, people have this idea that, that yeah, you know, I blame the Rocky movie for this. You know, people getting up at half four in the morning and want to go training, and you know, mm-hmm. I think I said to myself, the Rocky movie was a crock of shit. Rocky could have beat beaten Apollo Creed in the first round if he maybe trained in the evening because Rocky was training. <laughs> <laughs> you, think, you think about right. Why, why Rocky was an idiot? This is why. Rocky was out running at half four or five o'clock in the morning around hitting meat in a cold locker, right? Rocky, mistake number one, you're fighting at nine o'clock at night. Why are you conditioning your body to be an optimal peak performance at four o'clock in the morning? Ridiculous. You're not even training six mm. for the time. This whole adage of, oh, you know, someone else is out there working. No, someone else is out there recovering. That's what's happening yeah. and getting more stimulus coming back to our conversation about the running miles as well or the running kilometers. So I think that's part of it too. The other part is mm. guys in movies and they go, oh, look at that guy, you know, oh, Daniel Craig, he did, he did James Bond. He's drinking 15 martinis and getting up in the morning. He's got a six pack. That must be possible. It's not possible. It's a movie. It's water he's drinking. It's not real, right? It's a made up movie <laughs> as well. The other one that I see as well is people then go on and Google what happened. Oh, how do you get in shape? And there's four exercises. He did box jumps, bench press, you know, squat and ran 10 Ks. And people do all that program and then go, oh, why didn't I get it? But click here and buy the $99 program. It's all a sales tactic. And what they're, what they're selling to you is the cheat. There is no cheat. There's no cheat of getting a six pack. There is no cheat of getting fit. There is no cheat of, you know, hitting PBs. The only cheat is doing yeah. And coming back to your thing about the iron doesn't lie and the weights or jujitsu, you've got to do the work, guys. Like if you don't do the work, you're not going to get anywhere. You know, and that's that's the problem. I think people are 
looking for the quick fix and we see it in sleep as well. Oh, I'll buy this mattress. I'll buy this pillow. There is not one published scientific paper showing that a mattress improves your sleep. Not one. But meanwhile, yeah. drive down into one of these industrial estates or go to Ikea in Dublin and you'll find 50 million people telling you about what the bed does and what it doesn't do. I haven't seen one published paper. And I'm telling you now, all these people talking about mattresses, mattress toppers, beds, pillows, it's all horseshit. It's complete shit. Get <laughs> your money, guys, and get back to some of these basic sleep principles that me and Kieran have been speaking about here today and, and sleep hygiene principles that you know you can find on Sleep for Performance or listen to some of these podcasts because this is the stuff that works. It's all these gimmicks you know, that people are buying online. That's all they are is gimmicks. And mm. Humans were looking for this quick cheat and we pay this thing, we get this cheat. You know, drink two shakes a day and have a proper meal. Guys, it, it doesn't work. And I tell you why, because I've tried yeah. all that shit. <laughs> it doesn't work. You've just, you've just got to put in the work. And that's what people don't, I don't think people understand that. And they want to have all these different aspects of your life, of their, of a, of a life or, or live all these different roles. They want to get up early in the morning and exercise. They want to be a super dad and a super mom. And they want to go to work and work 20 hours a day and be a high performing executive. They want to go out and socialize. And then they want to sleep 10 hours a day. Well, you know, move to Mars where it's a 36 hour day or somewhere else, but it's not happening here. You know, it's just, it's just not possible. And to your point about sleep medication, I heard last week that there was data presented at the Australasian Sleep Association conference that showed that 90% of people that went to their general practitioner walked out the door with sleep medication in Australia. Jesus. Like that's... But doesn't that... Doesn't, doesn't the sleep medication... I may, I may be incorrect here now and you correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but... Does it not just make you unconscious? It doesn't actually put you into a deep sleep. It doesn't actually put you, just, you're just literally just unconscious. Yeah, for a lot of it, yeah, you're not getting proper, you know, your sleep is from a hypnogram type of view, you know, REM periods and non-REM periods are disrupted. But also, yeah. after, for some people, after 10 to 21 days, the efficacy of that sleep medication is not there. Mm. So long-term studies show a cognitive behavioral therapy, including changes to lifestyle, and even chamomile tea over five years shows better performance in insomnia than taking medication. Mm. We get back to that root cause and we work on the root cause of what the sleep problems are. Yeah. The equivalent is like a lot of these ad addressing of symptoms, it's the equivalent of like if I look up my window here and there's a big tree out in the housing estate and behind my place here, and it's the equivalent of let's say that 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 tree is dying, but I go out there and I paint the background and I paint the leaves green, but I don't actually address why it is that the tree is falling apart in the first place. Yeah. You know, it's just covering up the symptoms as opposed to addressing the potential underlying mechanism, mechanistic causes. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree, man. And on one of our podcasts recently, we had a Buddhist monk on, I don't know if you listened to it, uh, Dr. Buddha. No, I must go back to that one. Yeah, he's actually got a PhD in chemistry and he's from Ireland. Uh, he's from down around your neck of the woods, from Tipperary originally, but studied chemistry. He used mm. to end up becoming a Buddhist monk about 10, 12 years ago. But he talks about, you know, I've had some great conversations with him. He's based in a monastery here in Perth. And we've had some great conversations about karma. And, you know, he boils down karma mm. and Buddhism very simply to cause and effect, you know. And I, and I, think, I think a lot of what we do in our life is cause and effect. You know, I'm trying to lose a few kilos at the moment to, to see if that helps with my swimming. And also as well, I just don't want to be getting too heavy as I get older. So I'm kind of watching my weight. I want to drop from 77 down to about 75 kilos. Not a huge weight, weight gain, but our weight loss um, or a huge goal. 
but it's hard, man. It's hard not to look at the cho- it's hard not to look at the chocolate bar or grab that extra piece of food. Mm. It's all these little things, and every time you pick up a date or a banana, you know, or whatever it might be, you're just cheating yourself, type of thing. And I know that's cause and effect. If I eat that, this is going to happen. If I don't sleep, this is going to happen. If I don't train, this is going to happen. If I don't do my work, this is going to happen. You know. Mm. That's part of that's uh, personal responsibility. You know, that's that's a, a lot of that comes down to. And it's interesting, like that that element of um, karma. I must go back and listen to that because how, how I was kind of thinking of it was um, was this idea of um, to look at it even just from a kind of a reductionist perspective is that it would potentially be just the way it is that you behave. Let's say you were to behave in a negative way and mistreat people that it would end up coming back on top of you just because of people then less, less likely maybe to, to treat you well or to do you favors just because you have a reputation or you may have mistreated them, you know, and it's just this very, very simple way of looking at it. Yeah. And that's, that's why I, I, I'm, I'm very much attracted to, to Buddhism about uh, from an operating, mm. or an operating system. Yeah. I think it's a very good way to live your life. Like the fundamentals of Buddhism are, are, are pretty, are pretty good. And I like it as an operating philosophy, you know, about mm. what kind of core of karma, which is very similar to Taoism. But also I find huge overlap between Buddhism, Taoism and Stoicism, you know, and, and it's, I start reading about a few years ago and I was like, shit, this is like a form of Buddhism. Yeah, it's it's very very similar, and and you know they, they overlap more than what we think, and um, yeah, so I I like I like those as kind of underlying operating philosophies for living my life because um they do provide you a kind of uh, a good kind of a toolkit I suppose to get up every day and and, and get your shit done. Hundred <laughs> percent, and I I would have made that same acknowledgement between because the, the 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 aspect of Buddhism that I would have gotten quite interested in was was. Uh, the kind of uh, Zen Buddhism as utilized and applied by samurai culture. And there's so many echoes between that aspect or that approach to Zen Buddhism and Stoicism. Like it's that those echoes across East and West. And it's so much of it. I think is just people are just people. And if you leave people alone long enough and give them time and, and resources to be able to think about stuff we're all going to come to the same realize well i say we as in humans not 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 insinuating that i could come up with something like like, sto- like stoicism or anything yeah. but that people across time if they're left alone to their own devices to just think of to be able to think about stuff and to have the resources to be able to think they're going to come around to the same kind of philosophies and the same kind of viewpoints and efficacious ways of approaching life especially approaching the kind of inevitabilities of life which is suppose death and suffering and pain does the only guarantees that we have which is my understanding a lot of what stoicism and zen buddhism are based around which is the only guarantee we think we have is that we're all going to die at some stage so how can we make the most of the experience in the meantime I think that's why, like, Jordan Peterson has got the world's best-selling book at the moment with 12 Rules for Life. I think that's why it's so popular. It's because he's kind of taken bits of all of those and put them into a book with other things as well. But I think mm. why it's so popular, I, you know, 
I listen to lots of his podcasts and different interviews. And not that I agree with everything he says. I think he's been completely mischaracterized in the media over, you know, mm. bullshit clickbait things. But if you look at his underlying work and his message, very akin to those three areas we've been talking about, about Stoicism, Buddhism, and Taoism. Yeah. Very akin to those. And I think a lot of people like that approach. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've had a few uh, ladies actually talk to me about how much they admire Jordan Peterson in their 40s and 50s, where a lot of people think that he's a misogynist and, you know, he's he's anti-sort of, um, you know, females and anti-sort of, like, transgenders and all this sort of thing. Like, But without getting into that, you know, he appeals to a big market because he is providing a kind of a distilled operating philosophy of how to live mm. kind of the best best of the law. So he does provide that kind of yeah. um, and some interest in backing up of scientific you know, papers, and then also this kind of correlation with Christian stories and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. But firstly, I think a lot of the mischaracterization, the people that I would have met who, or talked to, who quite dislike him, I think a driver of that is what it is that they're exposed to of him. And I think that a, a lot of people are exposed to as you said, these clickbait videos that are like 90 second or two minute long clips that are made by people. I'm not sure what kind of people make them, but they're just, they make him out to look very aggressive. They're like, and he can't, he is an emotional man. Like he does, but he, he, and he has been in situations that if you were to ju- and he has said things that if you were to just extract a particular 30 second or 90 second or 60 second clip out of a lecture or out of a discussion, that it can not necessarily result in him looking the best, but that's because it's totally taken out of context. And it's not in, it's not taken in context of his big picture, his lectures, his actual viewpoints, like his, his essential viewpoint. If I was to try and have a go at kind of summing up, summing it up is that the only guarantee we have in life is death and in most likely inevitable suffering in the meantime. And we're look, and we're all going to get just like the, just like the Buddha discovered. We're all going to get sick, and maybe get old, but most and then most likely die. And we're lucky if we get old first. And as a result of as soon as you accept that that the inevitability of life is suffering and pain and inevitable death, then how do you live in such a way with enough, I suppose, meaning or purpose to justify the inevitable suffering? and misery that you will go through inevitably because of the loss of loved ones and, and, and your own demise. So how do you live in such a way? And his kind of solution is, well, when that's the case, how do you justify that? And I suppose his justification then is to, and he uses the Christian terminology of bear the biggest cross possible, the heaviest cross possible, because the bigger the burden that you bear, the better you're going to be able to deal with the inevitable difficulties that you come across because you have a stronger why, you have a stronger purpose, you have a stronger meaning to what it is, to why it is you're doing what you're doing. So then when you come across setbacks and everything, that you are better able to deal with them because you have a stronger sense of purpose and direction. And then what that strongest, what that purpose and direction is, is is represented by, he uses the phrase of, uh, or the kind of concept of, I think it's called a Piagetian concentric circle, which is where, if you imagine, I kind of picture this as in, say a dot in the middle of a page and that dot is myself as an individual 
And then there's a, and then there's a circle around me of my closest friends and family, closest loved ones. And then there's a circle around them of their closest loved ones and so on and so on. And you don't have to get very many circles out before you're at 9 billion people. And if you live, if you, if you as an individual live in such a way that what is good for you is only good for you, if it, if it is good for your closest friends and family, but also is only good for them if it's close, if it's good for their closest friends and family and so on and so on, not just now but ideally in a stable manner, if not in an increasing manner across time and space. So it essentially acts as like a, a grounding ethic for an operating system on how it is to live and what decisions to make. You know, that would be my kind of summary of, yeah. of his philosophy and his work, you know, which I don't, which I, I, I'm tr- I've tried to poke holes in it. And... <laughs> Just because I think it's a good trend, a good thing to do is to try and poke holes in things that you agree with, because trying to identify it is, uh, any weaknesses in it, and it's I haven't been able to. Not to say that I'm some kind of an intellectual giant uh, by any means. You know, I've been punched in the head far too many times to ever consider myself a viable philosopher. But but, but you know what's interesting I, there, Karen, is that like you talk about just how people approach him is, you know, people get pissed off where he talks about making your bed every day. People get mad about that. And he talks about, you know, you achieve something. But then a few weeks ago, I see on Facebook and Instagram a video going around of a military general or somebody in America talking about the importance of making your bed every day. And then people are retweeting it and showing it and going, this is great. This is, this is what we all should be doing. You know, this general here is a great leader and blah, blah, blah. But Peterson says that and I want to cut his head off. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, yeah. it, they're not they're not actually listening to the message. They're just confronted with the um, the vessel of the message being Peterson, and then they get pissed off at him because of the clickbait. Karen, I need to change topic here because I got one more thing I want to talk to you about, and then I have to yeah. do jiu jitsu training and get my head kicked in, um, nice. metaphorically. Um, you did you did a big digital detox this year, Karen. You, you abandoned social media for a number of months. Um, I, I, I sent you a message or an email because I, I thought something happened to you. <laughs> you didn't sort of announce it. <laughs> is he dead or what happened to him? Or where is he? I thought you maybe got stabbed, you know? <laughs> but what was the, why, why, why did you do that, mate? You just, you just completely shut down there for a few months and I was intrigued as to why you did it and what was the benefits you found from doing it? Um, it's, it's multifactorial, I suppose. Um, Part of it was that I kind of realized, so I'm, I'm the kind of, I'm a very detail-orientated person. So even when I, when I was posting um, videos, training videos, for example, and of particular training sessions, I was also writing in kind of explanations as to what they were about and what it was for and why it was being done and what was the context to try and potentially spread some useful information or what I found to be currently of use and to kind of give some context and some education. And part of the driver for that was because I just started doing it a few years ago and then people would come up to me randomly that I just friends of friends or mates of mine or they'd, they'd mentioned to me just offhand that they found it useful and they found it cool to, to kind of learn a bit of stuff about learn some information about certain training modalities. And you know, it was, it was nice positive feedback. And then learning more and more about the addictive properties of it and then realizing that there was certain times in which I would be logging on 
not because I was going on. I was ask, if asking myself essentially my intention. And there was times that I'd log on in which I'd catch myself and I'd realize that my intention to log on wasn't for a positive reason. It was to log on to see likes or to see comments and stuff. You know, it wasn't, and it wasn't even that there was massive thousands and thousands of likes or anything like that, but it was like realizing that my brain was becoming addicted to the, to kind of, I don't know, what would you say? Or attracted to the, maybe, maybe even addicted to the kind of social approval aspect of it, you know? And it just, and then, and then realizing that was the case and then abandoning ship and then taking a break from posting for a little bit, but then still having the account active and then getting back and then realize, and then that would, it wasn't that it was a major issue as such because I'd catch it and catch myself when that was the mentality. So I started asking myself the why that was firstly. So then realizing that this was a potential thing that would occur every now and then, whereas my, I log on and posting potential training videos that was with the intention of this particular bit of information being of use to people. And then every now and then realizing that certain times I was logging on was, as I said, not for positive reasons, but because of like the addictive properties of it. And then the second thing, second reason was how I was finding it was negatively affecting the actual experience of life itself. So put in, an example would be I'd make a cook a nice meal or I'd be out with with friends or I'd be in a really beautiful location and rather than simply be able to experience the location there was a drive to document that situation to then be able to share or write about it and I was thinking about it like I don't know if that's a good thing because while it may be of use to other people it's actually negatively affecting your ability to actually experience the real life situation in front of you. So that was a second kind of a contributor. I was just thinking about that because I don't know. And I, I, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it was just a balancing act between record the nice meal or take a picture of it, and especially from a nutritional perspective, maybe a, provide a little bit of context or education around a particular meal, or for example, or what if I just didn't record it, didn't have a means of sharing it and just actually enjoyed the meal and the experience of the situation fully there and then rather than actually sharing it. So that was the second thing. And the third thing was, as I mentioned around about the detail oriented kind of aspect of my personality, just from a time consumption perspective that it could take 10, 15, 20 minutes to write a, a fucking post because I'm so particular with my words when it comes to writing. And that that time I can better spend potentially on aspects of more maybe evergreen content or more useful contribution to my actual coaching work. So regards to writing articles or writing uh, or journaling from training sessions, uh, from coaching sessions about what went well, what didn't, what changes that I make to warm ups and didn't. And that same 15 or 20 minutes could potentially be put to better use that may better contribute to uh, to use that Peterson example, that Piagetian concentric circle of while this may while putting up a detailed training post may be of use to some people, maybe it would be of better use and a more impactful use to other people if I was to put that time towards enhancing my actual say writing an article or 
reading a particular, reading a book, reading articles, journaling on training sessions to, to, to retrospectively analyze what worked and what didn't within a session, within a coaching session, to be able to then have a more powerful, positive impact in other aspects. So they're supposed, they're just basically things that I was weighing up and going through in my head over the course of a few months. And then I just decided one day that it was just basically the cost to benefit analysis wasn't there. So I decided to abandon ship for a while. I didn't really have a set time period and I just haven't gone back on since. And I can't even remember when I was last Instagram or Facebook, I left a Twitter account active because I found that to be the least time consuming and kind of least I suppose, uh, addictive. Whereas it, and, it, and it genuinely felt like, and it still feels like a, a massive weight off the shoulders to not have all these accounts to be keeping an eye on and all these different messaging platforms to be keeping an eye on and all these different apps to, that are going off in your pocket and, or even just to be the fact that they exist, the drive to go and check them and see what's going on there. Yeah. So just at the moment, maybe, I, maybe I'll go back on eventually and I'll figure out a more useful way of more productive or maybe more constrained or structured way of using it if I do decide to go back on it. But for the moment, I don't really have any plans or intentions to, to use them anymore. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting to, to hear like how, you know, stuff outside has become more fruitful. Like, um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Too many of us get caught up on using mobile phones or on the apps and so on. So it's interesting to have you kind of tell us about getting more productive, I suppose, outside. So Big time. Doing better writing and so on. So, yeah. yeah. Cal Newport, you, you ever come across him in his book, Deep Work? No. I, I highly recommend that. That was a major thing for me as well. Was That was one of the most in, interesting and impactful books I'd ever come across, man. Um, he has this, uh, Cal Newport, he actually has a video, I think it might have been a TED Talk, called Quit Social Media. And he, he's a... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I've seen, I think I've seen that floating around, yeah. Yeah, he's, he, he's got this book, Deep Work, especially when it comes to even the concept. So... I think, I think it, from a, a, in, a, in a lot of aspects of life, as soon as you have language to describe something, it becomes easier to spot it. You know, like let's say jujitsu, like when, when, you, when someone first gets into jujitsu or they might never have done jujitsu, but they might come to a jujitsu gym and they might know what an armbar or triangle choke looks like because they've seen the UFC and they've seen Joe Rogan yeah. describe it, you know? So they have language to describe a particular movement pattern. So then it becomes easier to spot, you know? And I think that's the same, say, with this, this concept, deep work that Cal Newport wrote, wrote about. It's a fantastic book. And it's this idea of essentially like pushing, setting up, setting up work strategies to increase your ability to work very deeply. Mm. And in terms of by thinking and it's something that you might already automatically do. Like when it comes to come by brainstorming a particular problem that you will set aside a particular block of time, maybe set an alarm on a phone or a watch, put the phone or a watch on airplane mode, not check the email and just sit there with a pen and paper and just brainstorm and, and trying to really trying to draw strands together and think deeply about something. And you can kind of get into this state of thinking almost like a kind of a flow state kind of a, a situation or potentially where it's also just quite difficult and you're kind of pushing against that resistance. But either way, you're in this situation where you're without distraction and you can just think about that topic and that's it. But it's, um, 
it's a fact he's got a bunch of different strategies in the book and different labels for different work strategies. But it's highly recommend, highly, 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 highly recommended, especially because you do so much creative stuff with the writing and your fin. I know you're finished the PhD now, but it may have been used to you had you come across it a few years before finishing the PhD. And that's one of the things that he talks a lot about is the distraction of social media. And he used an example. I think he used a phrase in the book existence bias I'm pretty sure was one of the things he talked about which is this this bias that humans have that just because a piece of technology exists we feel like we should use it whereas without necessarily weighing up what the cost benefit analysis is of that technology so he used an example in the book of um, say journalists who get encouraged to tweet very often or get encouraged to put out tweets a a certain number of times a day Whereas his argument would be, well, potentially maybe the fact that they have to go on to Twitter and break their their uh, break their concentration and come out of that deep work zone might potentially negatively affect their ability to to write as well or think as deeply about certain topics that they happen to be working on, you know. So and but whereas they're encouraged to use Twitter because it happens to exist, you know. So yeah, that's a, that's a different rabbit hole, but it's it's a it's a book I'd highly highly recommend. Awesome. Karen, we've done nearly, we've done over two hours, which I think you'll be our longest ever podcast uh, guest. I think, I think if we were face to face, we could do about 12 hours nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> the King of Cork via Limerick battles the beast from Athlone. <laughs> Karen, if people want to follow your uh, blogs, the Quarrelsome, the Quarrelsome Life, is that what it was called? Um, are you still right? Um, yeah. Uh, quarrelsomelife.com is the website. And I have then Twitter is at CT Quarrelsome, which I I can get into that whole quarrelsome story another day if we end up chatting again. Maybe maybe over, maybe over maybe I get I get I'm going to start my own podcast. I'll get you on my own. But I, I, and and enough if, if anyone wanted to contact me, uh, Kieran at Sigma Nutrition is right. my um, spell Kieran there for people who can't spell C I A R A N. See, there you go. That's the Irish way of spelling it, lads. <laughs> yeah, that's, that yeah, if anyone... <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I appreciate you having me on, and I really enjoyed the conversation. And again, I hope you, if, if you do find yourself coming home for a holiday, visit the family or anything, let me know. And we can go and do a bit of training and grab a bite to eat. I'll have to arrange the visa to get into Cork separately as, as my Irish passport won't get me in there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can sort you out, man. As you said, I'm the, the king, so... You're like the king, and, and you're also the a coyote. You get people across the border at night. <laughs> so, yeah, part-time, I'm a full-time sports scientist, and they do some human trafficking on the side. <laughs> oh, the, the DEA and the CIA and the FBI and the Gardaí Shia Khan are listening to this. Kieran, thank you very much. The king of Cork lives on. Go forth and spread the good word. Stay out of Limerick. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that. It was long. It's good though. It's crazy. If you uh, if you listen to that podcast, you uh, would have heard two Irish lads going crazy. You might have learned a little bit more about myself and Karen on that one as well. So we did take a lot of different tangents, but I hope you enjoyed it. So just wrapping up before we go, guys, don't forget head over to the website sleepforperformance.com.au. Twitter at Sleep for Perform, Facebook Sleep for Performance, and once again, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review for us, that'd be great on iTunes. So you can check us out on iTunes or on Podbean. 
and uh, I believe Podbean now has a little deal with Spotify so you can maybe check us out on Spotify as well any which way you can get it get it you can even listen to it on the website okay until next month sleep well <laughs>